Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Thursday morning, May 4, 843-661-0937 is our number. So I got a little bit nervous this morning. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So I got a little bit nervous when I got here this morning. Um, the Celsius, we, we got these stashes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, do tell. Well, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So when my boys were younger, my boy, my brother and I were 17 months apart. Or are, still are, but that didn't change. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. He didn't not catch change. me. He hadn't caught me over the years. Uh, every day he gets older, I get day. I get a day older. So my brother's 17 years my junior. My two boys are 17 months apart. So when my two boys, especially over the weekend, were out doing their thing, um, beginning to smell gasoline and perfume at the same time, and you know how boys are when they begin smelling gasoline and perfume at the same time, they lose their minds. I mean, there's just no semblance of uh, of normalcy in their lives. So anyway, my wife and I don't do much during the week. You know, we do some things on the weekend. This would have been before we started going to the beach so much because our kids, our boys, played baseball and basketball and football. And the weekends were, were kind of spoken for at the old ball yard. So we'd always go somewhere and eat, and we'd, we'd go to one of these places to give you a bunch of food, and we'd have leftovers. So I would stash, you know, the leftover – in the fridge. I think Rev knows where I'm headed because he's got two boys. Mm-hmm. I'd wake up the next morning um, at about noon, get hungry, and say, hey, I remember I got that half hamburger steak, you know, left in the <laughs> fridge. And I would grab the box, and it would be feather light. And I'd say, okay, uh, what's happened here? Not only would they eat the hamburger steak, they'd put the box back. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds very familiar. You know what I mean? I'm yep. like, dude, if you eat my hamburger steak, at least throw the box away <laughs> so I'm not, you know, uh, just tricked or fooled or led to believe there's food there. So I would open the fridge early that morning, you know, do my thing. I'd see that box. I'd say, yeah, I'll get you by noon. You know what I mean? That half hamburger <laughs> steak, I'll get back to you by noon. The entire time, there's nothing in the box. So yep. so I began hiding the box. Okay. And it was kind of a uh, it was you. a grand strategy. My wife would say, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm moving this milk, and I'm moving this orange juice, and I'm moving this mayonnaise, and I'm moving this ketchup." What do you mean? I said, "There's a there's a there's a sweet spot back there somewhere that I can hide the half hamburger steak from the view of your two boys, not my boys, your two boys, the scavengers that rummage <laughs> through my leftovers and um and leave me deeply disappointed." So we've got these um we got this partnership with Pepsi. Let's fast forward. We got this partnership okay. with Pepsi, and and one of my delicacies of the day is the Celsius at about eight or nine, somewhere there about, depending on when I go to the gym. And um, I mean, they, we 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 believe we set records in the nine o'clock hour for the most spoken words in an hour of spoken word radio, and that's largely because of the Celsius or the fast twitch. Now, once again, being the studious sort, Rip, I've studied about how the the fast twitch made by Gatorade. And the Celsius marketed, I think it's owned by Pepsi. It is owned by Pepsi. Both are owned by Pepsi-Cola. Um, but there's different way of infusing the the um, the caffeine into your system. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide, do I like the way the fast twitch is infusing or introducing the caffeine into my system, or do I like the way the Celsius? Anyway, I walk in this morning, and I know where the stash is. I mean, me and the salespeople have a deal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know where the life water is. You know where the right. Diet Pepsi is, the yep. Diet Mountain Dew, the Pepsi Zero. I mean, we've got a uh, we, we've got a plethora of choices here at Wake Up Carolina. But the 
the fast twitch and Celsius are a bit scarce. Mm-hmm. So the sales staff and I have kind of made a deal. They don't care much for it. You know what I mean? They don't need 200 grams of caffeine. I drink decaf coffee. That's kind of insane. I mean, I'm drinking decaf coffee to not get the caffeine, right? But I'm taking a caffeine bomb. Yeah. You know, it's somewhere around uh, between eight and nine. But that's the complicated well, I mean, it, you. It, I guess. I guess. Well, I mean, it's it's a sport drink, you know, and I'm the sporty type. Right. So um. Right. So so I go to the stash this morning, and my boys had been there. <laughs> there's a box there. Ain't no Celsius. There, there's a little crate there. Ain't no Gatorade. So I go to the. This would be break glass in case of emergency. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this one honey hole, so to speak, that um that I know where it is, and only I and one other salesperson, and she'd taken care of me, Rev. Mm-hmm. She had one stashed oh. in the secret. I'm talking about the Fort Knox of all fast twitch or Celsius stat a place that neither of my boys could find. I mean, this is not just behind the um the mustard and ketchup. This is behind the compressor on the um on the refrigerator. So, um, so, so she's probably not listening this morning, but to that single salesperson who know who I'm talking about, thank you for the, I, uh, uh, for the stashing of my caffeine bomb that I'll, um, that I'll consume somewhere in the eight, nine o'clock hour. I feel like I, I need to come clean about something. Okay. So yesterday, there was a lot yesterday. Yeah. So, Th- so there was several fast switch <laughs> left yesterday. Right. So, my wife over the weekend had told me, hey, I hear Ken talking about those fast twitches, but I have not tried one. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> so I go sniffing around yesterday and say, hey, and I looked in the in the Pepsi cooler in the lobby, and I didn't see any fast twitch in there. And I started sniffing around. Because they're stashed. Right. Well, <laughs> where I thought there might be a stash or two, and I ended up in one of the salespeople offices. And I said. Uh, I that said, salesperson. Yes. No. Oh, okay. Same person. Okay. And so I, I said. Hey, uh, we don't have any of that fast twitch sitting around. I don't see it anywhere. And, and she's like, oh, yeah, we might have a couple. I said, really? She goes, yeah, here. here. And she reached down to an, uh, a, a secret area and said, yeah, we've got a couple. Not the most secret area, right. but a secret right, area. Right, right. A secret area that's not normally okay. accessible okay. or whatever. So she gave me those those two and okay. I, I took them. okay josh you need to come clean about anything <laughs> I, I just felt like you know i wasn't gonna say anything josh are you still on the team or are you going cowboy as well uh i guess i'm still on the team i've not tried Celsius okay, yet, okay. but i will but all this talk about it has kind of turned me on you to it, be so revs we'll going see. rogue i mean but he admitted he's going <laughs> rogue, right did. well you know since you pointed out that you expected them to be there and they weren't it's really it's it's my fault so, so, so we're even now rev came clean that there was a day early in our in our radio careers <laughs> this make us even that, that I didn't know what I was doing and um so Rev comes not storming in he comes at a fast pace one morning I mean I get here early and he I mean I, I still I got some compiling of information to do so I get here at about five five ten five fifteen somewhere there about between five and five fifteen depending on whether I had to shave that morning or not so um so I get here and the background music is aggravating me. I mean, I want it kind of a, I want it quiet and I want to be able to do my thing. And I, and I kind of know what I, what I have on my mind and how do we need to organize it or compile it. So Rev walks in and says, Hey man, the radio show isn't on. I said, what do you mean it's not on? Yeah, we were off the air. He said, we're off the air. I said, do what? He said, yeah. And he, and he reaches up and he grabs one of these knobs and he, he said, well, I see why now. And he, and he kind of pushes the knob, nudges the knob northward. And, um, and the radio show comes back on or the, um, the station comes back on the air and Rev says, um, Rev says something. Do you know what happened? And for a second, I nearly said, no, I don't. <laughs> but I, but then I, 
I just remembered, okay, we got to build this relationship. We got to be trusting one another. I said, Rev, I slid it down. Yeah. I slid you it all the clean. way down. I came clean. <laughs> I slid it all the way down. So now we're even. Okay. And Rev is convinced you can mess with the small knobs on that board. Don't mess with the big knobs. The big knobs get us in trouble. They take us off the air. The small knobs just turn it down to the studio and the and the, and the waiting room. And uh, so I've remembered, don't touch the big knobs. Now, Josh, you got to touch the big knobs because <laughs> you got a job. He to knows do. how to run the yeah, system. And I don't. And I don't. I just know not to touch the big knobs. So now we're clean. I mean, not, now we're even. Okay. I uh, came clean with you when, when, when pressed into service, and you came clean uh, when pressed into service. And, um, and I guess I'll stop by a convenience store nearby and get me a Celsius or a Fast Twitch since – Rev's gone rogue and cut a deal with the salesperson that I thought I had an exclusive deal with. So mm-hmm. apparently my deal is not exclusive. But she did take care of me because yeah. she has told me before that if you ever doubt there's one left in the building, look here. So when I looked there this morning, pulled the drawer open. Now, I hope it's not an empty bottle. Hope my boys hadn't been by. Right. Because you know, they, they drank the fast twitch and put the bottle back empty, and, <laughs> and I go there and grab it. Familiar anyway, with that th- th- there's 16 minutes or 10 minutes of nothing about nothing. 843-661-0937 is our number. I guess the the theme of the show, and, and, a, and a show has no theme on Monday. It, it kind of wobbles around. Um, Rev's watching the Braves and Gamecocks. I'm watching the Braves and Gamecocks. Um, Rev's watching a little bit of the race. I'm watching uh, some of the race. We're doing our thing. We're checking out. Because I'm telling you guys, in today's world, politics is a grind. I mean, they're, they're not giving away lottery tickets, right? I mean, they're, they're not sitting down um, having ice cream and cake together. I mean, they're at it. I mean, the, the two parties are at one another persistently and consistently. And it's our job um, to spin it to our advantage. <laughs> so so, so that, that gets a bit grindy. And, um, and on the weekends, I like checking out. I don't like to see how mad McCarthy is at Democrats or how mad, you know, um, Biden is with the Republican Freedom Caucus. I mean, that, that's really. But by, by Thursday, the show begins kind of self-developing a theme. And the theme to me this week, and that's what's always, uh, this is what I really like about Thursday morning. If you ask me the favorite show, it'd be Thursday and Friday. Because the shows have kind of written um, some of themselves. You know, and, and, and let's be honest, I'm not the only author. I mean, you guys out there, 843 uh, are very much a part of writing, of writing this story. But by Thursday, there's a theme. And this week's theme, I think, is, man, we've got some big issues. Why aren't we debating? I mean, why, why are we trusting the National Review to give us one account? Why are we trusting Salon.com to give us an account? Why are we trusting Fox News to say X, Y, or Z and trusting? Uh, why don't we debate these issues ourselves? And toward the end of the show yesterday, we began debating one of the most fundamentally important issues in our future, and that is our mode of transportation, how we're going to power our economy in the future. And and I think, you know, we had an interesting conversation. I went back and read, and I want to give you an example. There's a, there's a Tesla advocacy site, but I mean, it's not run by Tesla. It doesn't say, hey, you know, the Tesla advocacy site. It's got some <laughs> other name, but it's got a lot of information advantageous to, to electric vehicles and Tesla in particular. And when you read that site, it says that, you know, the, the life expectancy of a battery in a Tesla is 22 to 37 years. And then you go to another site. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm making up a site, EV Contrarian. 
And they're saying that the average life expectancy of a battery is somewhere five to six years. So why are we not debating that? I mean, if we're going to make a monumental decision about the mode of transportation, and once again, um, the EROI, and, and that basically, but I wrote it down this morning, the return on energy you put in. And when the return on energy you put in is negative, you got to subsidize it to create a space in the marketplace. I mean, there's no other way around it. If it takes more energy, and, and I'm talking about carbon producing energy, right now, I mean, and this is why we need this debate, right now, if you're driving a Tesla, I mean, maybe you're a car snob. I get that. I mean, I'm somewhat of a bourbon snob, not a food snob, not a television snob. I'm, I'm somewhat of a bourbon uh, snob. If you drive a Tesla and it's because you're a bit snobbish, I get it. I get it. Um, there's an old saying, um, do well by doing good. So you think there's some doing good there. You, you believe you're helping save the planet. I don't buy that, but you believe that. And I respect the fact that you believe that doing well by doing good is something important to you. But when you look at the engineering formula, E-R-O-I, the return on energy you put in, driving an internal combustion engine is less carbon producing now than uh, the full life cycle of owning an electric vehicle. Because once again, when you put, pull to the charging station, you're, you're powered by the electric grid, and it takes more power to do that than it does drive a car 50 miles in internal combustion, uh, com internal combustion battery degradation. I mean, I read more than you care to imagine about battery degradation yesterday. Tesla has an opinion. EVcontrarian.com has an opinion. And, um, and, you know, we need to start debating these issues. There are people out there that believe that after five years of driving an EV, you need to replace the battery. The battery loses somewhere between 1% and 3% of its storing capacity per year. Tesla says one year. EV Contrarian says three year, uh, 3%. 1% EV uh, CB Tesla, 3% EV um, Contrarian. And I don't know the name of the site, but it was, it was, a very, I mean, it was, a, it was an engineer from GM that had left General Motors, and he started a website saying, hey, man, they're not telling you the whole story. You know, Al Gore and, and, and John Kerry are flying around the world saying it's time for a humanity to save the planet of which we inhabit, and electric vehicles have to be a part of that, but they're not telling you the whole story. And he's one of these guys who talks about the EROI. I mean, he's an engineer. He's a mechanical electrical. I mean, he, he knows what he's talking about. And when you read some of his comments, I mean, he doesn't blast Elon Musk. He applauds Elon Musk. He said, you know, for someone to be such an entrepreneur as to take on space exploration and changing the mode of transportation that we've considered normal for most of our lives, the internal combustion engine, I mean, the guy's to be commended. Build a statue for Elon. I mean, that's kind of what he, build a statue for Elon. But let's talk about the seriousness of what we're trying to do. And his point is mine. We're not having a serious conversation about electric vehicles. We're not having a serious conversation about decarbonizing the largest economy of the history of mankind, an economy the world depends on to do X, Y, and Z. Probably not as much as you and I wish it would, because we've talked about, you know, the, the financialization of the economy, and then you've got a manufacturing economy and an energy-producing economy. But, but it is so interesting. So, so I believe that by this Thursday, the theme of this show is, why aren't we having these debates? I mean, if, if we're in the 200 biggest radio market in America and we can drum up some semblance of a debate, why can't some of the major thought leaders in America do the same?
I mean, I'm proud of what we do here. And I think I'm most proud when we do have this sort of debate. And, and, it, and it's about fundamentally important issues in our life. Um, are we going to throw the internal combustion engine away? I mean, is that, is that seriously what the government has decided to do? I mean, is it going to subsidize EVs to a point where all of us are almost forced to, to just say, hey, no thank you to the internal combustion engine, but yes to the, to the electric. I mean, it, it seems to me that's what government's intent is, and corporate America's kind of jumped on board uh, some of this ESG and, um, and, and some of the, you know, do well by doing good. And, and I, I'm just thinking about it riding over this morning. If we're in a Sumter, Orangeburg, Florence market that ranks, I, I mean, you read between the three, what, 150th? Yeah, if you added them I mean, together, if you add them together we're probably the 150. Yeah, probably so. so there's 149 radio markets in America today not having a, a debate about issues that are fundamentally and critically important to, uh, you know, uh, Americans' advancement. And and that's that's what I love sinking my teeth into. I mean, th- th- those are the, the sorts of issues that but I how, think. How can you have that debate? And I'm going to talk about on the national scale or even with, uh, quote unquote experts in these fields. I mean, doesn't it seem like any alternative to the settled science, as it said, by some of those experts on those on that side, is they they shut down the debate. They don't want to hear it. You get deplatformed well, if you try. I mean, it's the heavy hand of government, right? I mean, it, so how can a, you have a debate? Well, I mean, that's a fair question. That's a, I mean, it, has the government decided we're not going to allow these sorts of debates anymore? Has the media decided? Because the media would be the conduit. I mean, the media would be the platform of which we'd we'd have these debates. Why aren't we having a debate every night on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News about the pros and cons of electric vehicles and the pros and cons of climate change? I'm, I'm not saying I know the answer to electric. I'm not. I mean, it, please understand. And that's when people like you know I, I get attacked occasionally for for throwing things out there that are just untrue i mean that's irresponsible art come on man i mean stop with that you've got an audience you've got a little bit of sway with that audience stop saying things that are that irresponsible is it irresponsible to say i don't believe everything i'm told about climate change and i don't believe everything i'm told about the electric vehicle but is that irresponsible to me it's the most responsible thing someone can do when afforded an opportunity to engage an audience is to say things like hey i don't trust all that but but once again to, to your point why are we not every night Every night CNN broadcast in prime time, why aren't we having a debate about some of these fundamentally important issues that will, you know, help shape the world of which we live in over the next 40, 50, 60, um, 70 years? I I know more about it than I did, but I don't have any idea um, if the the life expectancy of a lithium-ion battery in a Tesla, I mean, Elon Musk and Tesla say 22 to 37 years, um, some of these other engineers say five to six years. And at the end of five years, you've got to replace 30% of the vehicle's cost. How many people know that? I mean, I'm not saying the guy's right. I mean, he's an engineer. He, he's, and, he, and he's very, uh, you know, very supportive of what, of what Musk has done. He's not buying some of the Tesla talk. I mean, he's basically said, you know, an electric car battery is not going to last 37 years. Forget that. And if you go to Tesla's website, some of the advocacy points are, you know, the the, the battery is 4,000 life cycles or charging cycles and 22 to 37, 400,000 miles. The engineer is not buying that. I mean, the engineer actually said that um, 2,000 charging cycles is about the max. So if you take 2,000 charging cycles, you do it once a day. What are you, four, four and a half years? Uh, five and a half years? Yeah, five and a half years, somewhere 
I'm there about 365, a little better in five years. So, 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 you know, I don't know what the truth is, but why aren't we having these debates? I mean, that's, that's yeah, my point. Why aren't we having these critically important debates? Jeff and I debate. He gets a little bit testy with me. I get a little bit, that's fine. So what? You know, no big deal here. He disagrees with me. I disagree. But how many of these fundamentally important debates are we actually having in America today? Very, very few. Let's take a break. I know we got callers. We'll get there as soon as we pay some bills. Back at a few. I disagree. I think we're significantly better than a colonoscopy. <laughs> significantly Great. better than a colonoscopy. Somewhere between diverticulitis and, and a colonoscopy, <laughs> you find <laughs> the tolerance level of wake up. Carolina, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. That about describes it. Here's Breeze. Good morning. You know, kid, years ago, when they were trying to bring the first girl to the Citadel, and they were saying it was because it was a just thing to do, that women needed to get the same education we did, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't about that. It was about destroying, trying to destroy what the Citadel used to be. You know, the gay scout leaders. wasn't about being, being dag old off. Fair to gay men that wanted to be scout leaders. It was about destroying the Boy Scouts. Same thing with the armed forces, police. You could go on and on. This whole thing, if you were to argue or debate somebody at the Starbucks about the, the, the battery cars, he probably believes that, Poppy Cop. But the people that are that are forcing us through government, with the, the government who is forcing the electric cars down our throat, they don't believe it. They don't give a rat's behind about the about the environment. The electric car has a lot of damn thing to do about the environment. And you know what? And I know it. It's about controlling us. That's the bottom line. Trans, like, you know, you, you know as they were Duke University, showing what are the right ages for them to mutilate a boy and turn him into a girl. Like, four years old, you might have seen the crap. Four years old, eight, 12, 16, how to transition from a guy to a girl or whatever. It's not that they give a crap about those kids. They're trying to destroy the moral fabric of the country. You know, if they really wanted to run clean energy, they'd be running nuclear power, right? They'd have more nuclear power plants. They don't give a crap about that. They, they say it's bad to mine coal, but it's good to mine nickel, cobalt, and all the other ingredients to go into a battery. Well, hell, every one of those ingredients are couple of countries that hate our guts. And the mining is probably done with slave labor. Now, being a coal miner today may not be the best job, but it probably pays a heck of a lot better than a person that's digging cobalt in some third-world country that's doing it for probably nothing. So don't even have me this crap about the environment. You and I know that's a bunch of bull. And that got a dang thing to do with the environment. It's their, their, their end game. It's to make us all serfs, make them all rulers, and we do what we're told. We don't own anything, and we'll be happy. That's what the debate is. The debate would not be, you don't give a crap about these kids you turn it into girls. You don't give a crap about the environment, so why are you doing it? Because all lie to us because they don't give a crap about nothing except their own power and their own influence and their own money. They don't have that kind of compassion. Trust me, brother. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. So if we did debate... I mean, if the country had a, a kind of a, a, a revolution within, and we decided that we're not taking the expertocracy at its word, we're just not listening to the self-appointed masters of the universe, and we passed a, a referendum, and in the referendum it said that on the major issues in American life, we're going to debate it. 
We're going to force mandate. Now, once again, stick with me. I know this is this is a pipe dream and it's and it's a bit nonsensical, but but stick with me. What would our debate topics be? I mean, if the government said, "Okay, you're right. We try to control people, and you're pretty easy to control," but but it's not worked out so well. So we're willing to give you five issues every year. I mean, you folks that are skeptical of government, we're willing to give you five issues every year to have a genuine, sincere debate about the merits for and against. I mean, to me, transgenderism is number one. I mean, I know it's cultural, and I know some people say, well, I want to talk about those culture wars. No. I mean, I think transgenderism is, is, is just a concoction from hell. I think it's human depravity extreme, and, and I'd love to have someone defend, as Breeze just said, why you think it's okay for an eight-year-old kid to have a sex change operation. And I get the, the, the left will say, well, how many of those are there? It's not how many of those are there. How many of you believe that that's normal? Forget how many people do that. How many of you on the left are willing to publicly express your support of that? It's, if it's one or a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand, I don't care how many it is. How many, how, many, how many leftists are willing to say in public, in a debate forum, that, that I believe an eight-year-old should be allowed to have a sex change operation performed by a medical professional without the consent of a parent? I mean, I, I'm, I'll go as far, I mean, I'll go on the record. I don't give a damn what the parent says. Under, under any condition or under any circumstance, an eight-year-old should not have their sex change, period. I mean, you know, I'm almost to the point, well, I probably am to the point. I think sex change should be outlawed. I mean, if, if I believe in a sovereign God, if I believe in a perfect and just God, then, then, then why do I believe there's somebody that slipped through the cracks and were born the wrong sex? I mean, I can't believe that. I mean, unless I believe that God gets it right 99.9% of the time. You know, that God does control most of the universe. God is the alpha and kind of sort of the omega. No, no, I believe he's in control of every second of every day that I have ever lived and will ever live. And anybody who's ever walked this planet has or will ever live. So if I believe that, do I believe that one-tenth of one percent, you know, we're born the wrong sex? I mean, that, but, but let's have that debate. I mean, let's, let's genuinely have that debate. And, and here's what's happened in America. Some of these extreme positions, and it really goes back to what we've talked a lot about this week, these institutional power centers and their, their, their monolithic worldview, their one-sidedness of the debate. Um, it's easy to believe in climate change if nobody challenges you on why you believe that. It's easy to believe in gender dysphoria being not a mental illness if nobody ever challenges you on that. I think one of the great examples is Vivek Ramaswamy this week with Chuck Todd. I mean, I think he wipes the floor with Chuck Todd. Now, now um, some of the mainstream media, New York Times had an op-ed said that Ramaswamy expressed a very rigid and extreme position. And all Ramaswamy said, Chuck Todd said, there's a, a great deal of science suggesting that gender's a spectrum. There is no science that says that. I mean, how can Chuck Todd get away with that? How can NBC News uh, not say, hey, Chuck, when you say that, make sure you're ready to provide all that scientific information. There's no science out there that says gender is a spectrum. The scientific community has opinions about yay and nay, but there's no scientific research that says gender is a spectrum. Now, Todd's savvy enough to not talk about sex because he knows that kind of pins you down to XY and XX chromosomes. You know, it being a science, a scientific fact that there's a biological male and a scientific fact that there's a, a biological female. But Todd goes through the word gender. 
because he knows that's a little squishier. Gender's a spectrum. And Ramaswamy says, no, it's not. There's no, well, I mean, Ramaswamy didn't say, no, there's no, but he should have said, sure, there's no science out there that says gender is a spectrum. I mean, there's this modern leftist liberal mindset that has allowed the lack of debate to create some consensus. There you go. That's a pretty good way of saying it. The lack of debate that allows the creation of consensus. I mean, that, that's really what has happened. Let's not debate climate change. Let's not debate EVs. Let's not debate um, transgenderism. Let's not debate gender dysphoria. Let's not debate gay marriage. Let, let's just, you know, let's all as these institutional power centers, especially if we can get Wall Street on board. I mean, you got the media, you got academia, you, you've got the administrative agencies within government. So if we can get Wall Street and even the military, I mean, what if we get the military on board? Probably can't get the rank and file private first class Gomer Pyle, but we may be able to get the Pentagon. Because they're somewhat politically motivated. They want to gain political favor. But I mean, those guys that don't wear camouflage, but rather, you know, the Italian suits, maybe we could hoodwink them into being in the club. And then all of a sudden, Wall Street. And you know how no Wall Street is given in? How many Wall Street executives, I said it last week, I'll say it again, how many CEOs of Fortune 500 companies would denounce the, the, the sex change surgery of a 10-year-old? And, and I, you know, in all honesty, Ref, if I'm a shareholder for a Fortune 500 company, I probably want my CEO to be mute on that because I know we're not going to allow a debate. Now, if we're going to have legitimate debates on some of these issues, then, then you know, I'm, I'm, more, I'm, more, I'm more comfortable with a CEO of a company that I'm an investor in saying things um, like that. that there's a, I mean, I, I hate it for Bud Light, but I do. I hate it with all my heart. i got good friends in the beer business. I've got a, a, a good friend in particular who's got a lot to lose by what, you know, um, InBev decided to do at the corporate level. They're, they're trying to change it. They're trying to correct it. I think the one thing Anheuser-Busch has done is admitted they made a mistake. I mean, in all honesty, now, now once again, Breeze is making a point. Behind closed doors, I don't have any idea. I don't know what InBev is thinking behind closed doors. But publicly, they've said about all they can to say, hey, we got this wrong. I mean, we made a big, big, big mistake, and Bud Light sales are down, what, 26 28 percent somewhere there about Coors light sales or Coors beer and Miller beer are up like 13 14 it looks to me that everybody who stopped drinking Bud Light kind of went went half went to Miller and I guess Miller light the other half went to Coors and Coors light because you don't want them calories and carbs when you're drinking that, when you're drinking that beer I mean if you're drinking a Bud light you're probably going to go to a Miller light or a Coors light so so I mean it's as bad as I hate it for some of the I mean there's a little beauty in that but I mean, the market dictated a response from Anheuser-Busch. And Anheuser-Busch, without apologizing, kind of sort of apologized. I don't know if you saw this or not, but they, um, they're giving every employee of an Anheuser-Busch distributorship a case of beer. That's kind of a thank you. In other words, a thank you for dealing with what we forced you to deal with. I saw a guy driving a truck at, at um, that would have been in Myrtle Beach. Yeah, Myrtle Beach. My wife wanted to go somewhere to look at something. So I'm with her. And I saw a guy driving a Bud Light, big burly looking husky guy, you know, proud. And, and, and he, the way he looked in that, in that truck, it was like, I can't believe my people did this, man. You know, I didn't do this. You know what I mean? Right. The look on his face was like, it ain't me. I mean, I, I'm not the one that decided um, to do this. But, but uh, once again, the, the market demanded a debate. I mean, I doubt InBev wanted to have that debate, but the market demanded a debate. And Bud, you know, Anheuser-Busch responded by saying, our bad. I mean, they didn't, they didn't issue a pocket. Uh, I mean, I don't remember the CEO of Anheuser-Busch calling our show saying, our bad. 
but they've done everything to suggest. I mean, you're nodding your head. You'll agree with that. But they've done everything to suggest, hey, that wasn't real smart on our part. I mean, well, that was they, a they, real they, dumb decision on our part. I think they, they creatively, you know, tiptoed around it to make you perceive that. You know, I mean, I saw that the statement from the CEO. Eh, it was well, it basically like said, a non-admission we, we, we admission. Love our, we love our drinkers, and we yeah. the last thing we want to do was offend uh, people who drink our product. Um, but I'm with you. I feel for the local distributorships well, I mean, it, and the employees. It, it, I'm, I'm, and, I'm sorry, but the, the, the guy driving the Bud Light truck, you know, at the beach. I mean, he's like you and I. He's a, he's a working dude, man. I mean, he's doing the best he can. Probably started driving a delivery truck, got promoted, got promoted again. Next thing you know, he's looking after certain accounts, and he's sitting there with a big Bud Light. He's normally proud of that. Now he's going like, man, I can't believe my corporate people did this to me. Not not you know. I wonder this to the person who drives the Budweiser truck. I mean, I understand you're not delivering or unloading as much beer as you were. That sucks. I mean, that really. Are you mad with us? Because we're mad with Bud Light, or are you mad with them for making us mad with? You, you see where I'm headed? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Where's yeah? Into, yeah. Where do you focus? Well, I, mean, at you, I know where your loyalty is. You don't get a check from Wake Up Carolina. That's right. You don't get a check from Fox News. You get a check from InBev or Anheuser Busch or whomever the distributorship is. It's just a bad situation. But once again, Rev, the market demanded a debate. The market forced a debate, and you know, InBev slash Anheuser Busch had to provide. And whether it's an adequate response or not, I'll let you make that determination. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. It'd be kind of an interesting time to address an issue that I think I did. I do a lousy job of explaining a lot of things. I do a, I, I don't get frustrated at myself when I do a lousy job of explaining things that I really don't understand clearly. But when I do a lousy job of explaining things that I think I have a pretty good understanding of, it frustrates me. And I think yesterday... I did a lousy job of explaining something that I think I have a pretty good understanding of. And Reggie's financial report, or, you know, talking about investing and what your investment strategies are, it kind of leads me down the road. We've not talked about the Fed yet, but the Fed did what I suggested or predicted. And I was not the only one. I mean, everybody was predicting they'd raise rates uh, 25 basis points, 0.25. That's the 10th rate increase since March of 2022. Probably the most aggressive the Fed has ever been in a year i mean 10 rate hikes in a year is uh pretty aggressive they're trying to address inflation they're pretty much admitting in some of their um, comments that they've not done as well with inflation as they intended but some of the comments yesterday led me to believe that they're so that they're more concerned about the state of the economy than they are inflation and i mean they would never say hey we screwed up i mean we were talking a second ago about bud light bud light is explaining the best way they know how in, in, in corporate America language or lingo, we screwed up. Uh, but they're, they're not saying, hey, um, you cowboys and NASCAR fans and country music aficionados who drink Bud Light, um, we're going to give you what you want. We're going to back, go back to the Neanderthal days of um, of the fratty beer. You remember the girl they had, the ladies, oh, yeah. the, the woman they hired to be the branding and marketing director of Bud Light. Um, I don't understand that. I mean, it, call me a sexist, if you will. If you're selling a product marketed 80% to men, why do you hire a woman to be the marketing and branding director, right? I mean, you know, I don't yeah. design female hygiene products. I mean, that that would make much Thank sense goodness. as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you see where I'm headed. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's some, I mean, some answers are right before your very eyes. Some answers aren't that complicated. Um, you know, modern and Latin intelligentsia likes to make things far more 
complicated. If I'm selling a product 80% to dudes, guess who's going to be my marketing and branding director? A dude. But in, gonna, the, in the in the day of DEI, isn't this sure. part of the inclusiveness and to show, okay. You do well by doing good, Rev. And, and you got to show women that you want to expand their market share. You want more women drinking drinking more beer and you want them choosing Bud Light. I, I just, you know, I get it. I mean, I understand the do well by doing good um, sort of notion, but you got a product consumed 80% by men and you got a female as not, not, not a female um, financial advisor, not, not a female, what am I trying to say, CFO. I mean, you know, two plus two equals four, whether a woman's counting or a man's counting. That matter there. But the branding and marketing? I mean, you know, newsflash, there's a biological and genetic difference between men and um, and women. But I want to go back to the issue that I think I did a lousy job of yesterday explaining. And I'm um, talking about the economy and the Fed and the fact the Fed raised rates for the 10th time since March of 2022. But the reason the Fed is alarmed is the state of banking. The regional banks have them concerned about how much potential bad debt they have on the books. And the reason they're worried about the potential bad debts on the books is this uh, mass migration of people from major metropolitan areas post-COVID. And I'm talking about San Francisco. I mean, the occupancy, excuse me, the, uh, the, the vacancy rate of office buildings in San Francisco or office space in San Francisco is about 40%. I mean, it's normally, it needs to be 5 6%. I mean, really and truly in commercial real estate, if it gets to 5 or 6%, you begin getting nervous. I mean, you do. You like it at 2 or 3%. I mean, you like your property 98% occupied. Um, I'll, get, I'll let you kind of an inside secret. When we put together, and I'm talking about my partners and I, when we try to do a commercial property deal, can we pay for it at 50% occupied? I mean, can we pay the bank at 50% occupied? And if we can, it makes sense to do it because you got you got to program what if happens if the world blows up. Because you have recessions, you have, you know, economic turmoil and economic downturns, and you got to be prepared for that. But here's the problem. Let's say that the person who has a $250 million note on an office building in downtown San Francisco, let's say they applied that same rule. And they made the assumption that if the world blows up and everybody, let, let's say, I mean, it'll never happen, but let's say that we have a pandemic. And there's this uh, respiratory virus that causes everybody to freak out and stay home and kids don't go to school and people work remotely and businesses find out after the fact they can continue to work remotely. And the cost of, but they know the employees are not as productive at home, but does it offset the cost of uh, renting office space? So, so the production of the employee is 10% less from working at home because they're dealing with kids and I may flip to Netflix every now and then. Who knows? Um, so you're not quite as productive at home, but but you're saving 25% by not leasing office space. So you're net plus 15%. So it's really a good business decision. You accept the fact that your employees are not going to be as productive, but you're saving a bunch of money by not leasing all of this um, office space, expensive office space. So let's say that the developer in downtown San Francisco applied the same rule that we do and said, can we pay it back? If this crazy thing like a pandemic were to happen and our office building was 50% unoccupied, yeah, okay, let's do it. Let's borrow the money. Let's borrow the $250 million. And you borrow the money at 2.5% interest. And all of a sudden, the Fed raises rates. You got arms, you got adjustable rate mortgages, and there's a reset of the mortgage, and it goes from 25 3% to 55 6, 6.5%, 7%. Well, all of a sudden, the property has to be 75% occupied. 
or 70% occupied for you to meet your, your debt obligations. And I mean, the people aren't coming back to work. The office space is still empty. The, the companies have made just fundamental decisions in their business. And, and yesterday, I don't think I did a good job of explaining that because I tried to tie it into Horry County. And I think Horry County is part of this story because where are the people from the major metropolitan areas moving to? They're moving to South Carolina. They're moving to North Carolina. They're moving to Tennessee. They're moving to Texas. They're moving to Florida. That um, they're they're out migrating from some of these um, restrictive places, or more restrictive and more expensive uh, places. And I just don't think I did it. I think I did a better job just now than I did previously. Somebody came up to me yesterday and said, "Hey, you were talking about these office buildings in Horry County. Oh, I had many office buildings in Horry County, and I knew I'd done a lousy job of trying to, you know, I mean, you, you conflate those issues and get those." those issues confusing, but now do you understand? I mean, if the, if the building can pay the debt at 50% occupied and it's 50% occupied today and, and you financed at 3% and all of a sudden the finance charges are double, I mean, that, 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 that occupancy number has to change or you can't pay, pay the bank back. That's what the Fed's concerned about. I mean, without saying so much, I mean, Charlie Munger said that. Warren Buffett said that. Jamie Dimon has said that. But they don't run the Fed. The Fed's got to be a little more guarded about their commentary. But that's the that, that's the well, crux well, of the how, matter. How similar to that is the mortgage crisis of 08? Well, I mean, you don't lose your home. You know, that that's right. where you hang your hat. That's where you take a shower. Losing an office building is different than losing a home. I think you would agree to that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's something sure. personal, something yeah. home ownership. But it still is, it, it can damage the system well, it, it seems like in a bad way as much so i mean you know the regional banks hold about and then community banks some I mean, of the community and regional banks hold about 70 uh, about 70 percent of all um commercial debt and i'm talking about people who build shopping malls people who build strip centers people who build office buildings people who build apartment complexes the majority of those are financed with regional and community banks and when you're financing those projects at three percent interest I mean, there, there's a certain debt obligation, but but when that debt obligation goes to six or six and a half or seven percent interest, I mean, that debt obligation gets more onerous, uh, if you will. And you can't raise rates. Why can't you raise rates? Because supply and demand. I mean, there's not that much demand for the office space, and there's an ass of supply. So so raising Seems rates. Like your rent rates would go yeah, lower. Yeah, I mean, of course they will. I mean, there's no question about it. So um, so let's say in downtown San Francisco, I'm making up a number. You know, office space is $100 a foot, but the building's half empty. I mean, if I'm in the building, you know what I do? When I renew my lease, I'm not paying you $100 because I can go next door and pay $60. And it's a death spiral. And that's that's what the Fed not is, is deeply, deeply concerned by and about. Um, I predict, you ready? I predict some of these regional banks will get bailed out because of all the, um, I mean, it isn't bad debt. I mean, it is bad debt because it won't get paid back. So technically it's bad debt, but it wasn't malfeasance. I mean, it's, it's not It's not just irresponsible business people making irresponsible business decisions. COVID changed the world in, in, in a way related to commercial property in major metropolitan areas. Not so much here, but but in some of these big, big cities that they got real aggressive in lockdowns and shutdowns and, you know, um, the COVID restriction mindset. It, it, I mean, that, that's a generational effect on some of those places and their economy. Take a break. Back in just a few. Okay, the way I explained the, the, the Fed's actions yesterday sucked. I did better today explaining why I think the Fed is beginning to consider 
uh, not reversing course, but rather slowing down on some of the interest rates hike. I'll tell you the disappointing part of this, Reb. The Fed has not been as effective as they expected to be on inflation. I just believe that behind closed doors, they would never let me in those meetings. I don't need to be in those meetings. But I think in some of those meetings with a bourbon in hand, they would probably say to one another, the projected rate of inflation at 2% is unrealistic. we got to kind of coach the public into believing the new number, the new norm is somewhere around um, 3.5%. But the reason they're struggling is some of these um, some of this commercial debt on regional and community banks, and it's a lot of money. I mean, it's a it's a you ready? It's a buttload of money floating around Whoa. out there that I think is in is in is in question. I mean, I really believe some of the office debt, some of the strip mall debt, some of the uh, shopping center debt, and and it's kind of the post COVID world. So the Fed's trying to really balance between handling inflation and not putting community and regional banks in harm's way. And that's going to be threading a needle that I don't think they can. They can I mean, I don't think it's humanly possible. In, in other words, I think there's going to be some commercial debt fail, office buildings related in particular. And I think that will put a handful, maybe a double handful of regional and community banks in, uh, in, in problems. And, and once again, I don't think it's malfeasance. I mean, I don't think the bank loaned money like we did in subprime lending and the housing disaster of 2008. I think these were well-intended loans. I think the office building developers were probably good developers, but but once again, COVID hits, people flee the cities, they don't go back, and the rate increases, so the finance charge of those office buildings and commercial debt increase, and I mean, I, I've been in that vicious cycle, and it ain't no fun, rest assured. Let's shift gears. Great Television's senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well. Having a good week as well. We are doing well. Speaking of debt, uh, the private sector is not only the, um, the 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 group of people dealing with the debt issue. Um, debt is the most concerning issue in Washington to me, John, is the debt. I mean, I'm in business, been in business my entire life, raised by a self-made business guy, and I know the dangers of debt. And I, for years, have been so concerned about our inability to constrain spending. Are we making any progress, John? Well, we're making progress in this sense. There is a meeting that is set. It is for Tuesday. It will involve President Biden, congressional leaders. Yesterday, Senator Mitch McConnell, the leader for Republicans in the Senate, uh, accepted the invitation from President Biden to attend this meeting, uh, which is coming up on Tuesday of next week, May the 9th. And they need to strike a deal. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we know from the Treasury Department, I don't think they're blowing smoke, We know from the Treasury Department that the U.S. would default on its debt should no deal be reached uh, as early as June the 1st. So the clock is ticking. There are very few work days to get this done. Uh, And so that's why time is of the essence in terms of Biden and McCarthy coming to some sort of compromise or deal. And I think President Biden has to recognize the dynamics are different than they were during the first two years of his presidency. Republicans control the House of Representatives, and you have to deal with that reality. John, I read yesterday, I think it might have been the Wall Street Journal, about the discharge petition. That's kind of an odd way the Democrats could try to bypass um, Speaker McCarthy. Do, is, there, is, there, is that a real story? In other words, is there an attempt by the Democrats to bypass Speaker McCarthy by one, using one of these procedural sorts of things in the House? Well, in order to bypass Speaker McCarthy, you still need to get, if you're a Democrat and you want to go through that method, you still need to get 
five Republicans to break ranks with their Republican conference. And that's just not going to happen. You're not going to find those five House Republicans who will side along with what uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the leader for Democrats in the House, wants to do. You need to find a compromise. That's the bottom line. That's what, you know, it's all about is just finding middle ground, uh, finding something that uh, both sides can live with. It's not going to be the deal that, you know, you wanted. It's not going to be, be the deal that was passed by the House of Representatives uh, just a few weeks ago. It's going to be different. I think that even Kevin McCarthy has to acknowledge that it's going to be different from what passed the House uh, just a few weeks ago. So, uh, no, I don't think that discharge petition is going to work because show me those five House members uh, who are Republicans who are going to break ranks. I don't think you can find them. Yeah, good luck with that. Let's shift gears, go to the Supreme Court. Um, I've always been concerned about people with authority and influence who don't have to be held accountable to the public, the Supreme Court. I mean, I get it. I understand lifetime appointments. You try to take the politics out of it. But but when there, when there are ethical issues and questions about ethics, I always go to a place of whether or not we should have Supreme Court justices appointed for the entirety of their life. What are the ethical issues and what sort of conversation is Washington proper having about these issues regarding the Supreme Court? Well, what's happening right now is a lot of these issues have percolated because of stories that have come out about one justice in particular, Justice Clarence Thomas. That's where most of those stories come from. And whether or not, you know, he was complying with certain rules in terms of reporting and disclosing certain financial activity. And apparently he was not. Some uh, rules are now in place which compel him to report uh, various uh, things that happen on the financial side of things. But uh, for the past, uh, I would say, two decades, uh, he has not been, uh, I I would say, as on top of things as he should have been. The problem here is just the appearance of, you know, an uh, an ethical issue. You don't even want to have an appearance, whether there is an ethical issue or not, when you're talking about the highest court in the land. And, you know, there isn't even a rule that's in place, Ken, that dictates that a justice needs to recuse themselves from a case uh, involving a company that they may have, uh, you know, stock holdings in. That's pretty remarkable. You would think that there's a rule that even if you own, you know, let's say, 10 shares in a company and that company comes before the court, you should recuse yourself. And there's no rule that exists on that front. So to me, it's up to the court. I don't think Congress should get involved. I don't think one branch of government should be telling another branch how to do its business. But I think it's up to the chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, uh, to essentially say, look, these are the rules of the road going forward. We need to comply with this. People need to look to us, the highest court in the land, and trust that we're acting above board on everything that we do. So, John, who has ethical oversight over the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, the Supreme Court. That's it. The Supreme Court, they're self-governing. Uh, and so that's an unfortunate thing. You know, if you find an instance where uh, a Supreme Court justice may have had uh, this, I'm throwing this out as a hypothetical, so I'm not picking on any su- particular Supreme Court justice. But let's say they had their mortgage paid by uh, somebody or some company. That is something that needs to be self-reported. It's not something uh, that is compelled of them to report. And so that's the reason why all of these 
uh, stories have been coming up. The Senate Judiciary Committee, controlled by Democrats, holding hearings on this issue just this past week. Uh, and, you know, as it relates to uh, the Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, he needs to do a better job, you know, of reporting uh, when he takes vacations and has those vacations paid for, even if they're a longtime friend. He needs to report that. And by the way, Ken, I'd love to have a longtime friend pay for my vacations. It's never happened for me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty nice to not have to report it. Yeah. Um, let's shift right. gears. Last subject I want to touch on. Um, I saw a, a video this morning on uh, one of the networks of a, uh, a drone exploding over the Kremlin. Um, yeah. You never know with the Kremlin. You never know with some of um, uh, exactly. some of the shenanigans associated but what do we know about that? What is the speculation? I guess, what is the new story relating to the um, drone, drone exploding over the Kremlin? Well, we had that uh, claim, that allegation coming from the, the Russian government yesterday that uh, Ukraine is behind this. They said it was an assassination attempt on uh, Vladimir Putin, which is, you know, obviously a made-up story. Uh, you have President Zelensky denying that, saying that the Ukraine... A government, the Ukraine military, has not targeted uh, anywhere inside Russian sovereign territory. Uh, you also have denials coming from the State Department, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Uh, and the Russian government has provided no proof uh, whatsoever that those drones, and they were real drones, by the way. That was not you know, made up or fake news or you know, AI. Those were real drones. But they have provided no real proof that those drones were launched from Ukraine and by Ukraine. Well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great day and a great weekend, sir. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Ken. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. We say great television, guys, because great television owns WMBF, that is the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, and WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina, home of the Fighting Gamecocks. Mm-hmm. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. Back to the business of um, of taking calls. Let's go there. Here's Rodney in Florence. Morning, Rodney. Uh, <clears throat> I was just thinking about this last night. Uh, if Joe Biden is so hot on the electric cars, he wants to put us all in. Is his motorcade electric? It don't look electric to me. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that. I think we know the answer to that yeah, question. We, we know the answer to that. Gas-guzzling limousines. Um, and I believe that 747 he flies around drinks a little gas, too. Yeah, and, and once again, guys, I mean, the point I try to make this morning, I mean, it's easy to score debate points and talking points. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that. I mean, it's easy to score these points, but these are big issues. I mean, th- these issues will define, you know, how the next generation or two or three live their lives. I mean, modes of transportation and how we power uh, our modes of transportation, that's a big deal. I said yesterday, I mean, I may disagree with how much we fund or not education, how much we fund or not infrastructure, but but we can make mistakes. I mean, we're going to make mistakes. You got 435 people trying to, you know, move a nation forward or backward politically. Um, we're going to make mistakes. I mean, there's no if, ands, or buts. Um, if I were there, it wouldn't be any better. It'd be different because I'd be there, but it wouldn't be any better. I mean, you know, I've got these ideas. I've got these views and, 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 and proclivities, and I believe in certain things. But, but, but in all honesty, there are a handful of things you can't get wrong. And I'm concerned about our debt and energy. And I've said that over and over and over again. We're going to get some things wrong about education. 
we're going to get some things wrong about infrastructure. I'd like to see us get more things right than we currently are, but I understand it. I mean, I understand that, you know, govern a big country with a big, um, you know, representative republic. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be very, very imperfect. But, but I just think we're failing to have debates on these big issues that we must debate. And, and I do believe that the majority of um, that the majority of concern I have about the lack of debate is the the ability the left. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to the institutionalized conservatism. I want to talk. I mean, I think Drew Bakisic's calling us at eight oh five this morning, the SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, and I want to kind of go into that the institutionalization of conservatism and how it leads to the imposing of beliefs, the imposing of a worldview, um, political activism. I mean, J.D. Vance said it multiple times during his campaign. What do we do when we gain control of the levers of government? I mean, do we resort to, hey, we're limited government guys and gals, so we're not going to do much? Or do we say, hey, I don't like the way things are run, and I want to see them run fundamentally different? Are we going to end subsidies on electric cars? There you go. I mean, that, that would be a pretty aggressive move. I mean, are we going to remove every government subsidy from the EV and allow it to compete, you know, fairly with the internal combustion engine? And if the, if the market, this goes back to Rick's part, if the market, I mean, if engineers in the EV sector figure out a better way to transport people from point A to point B than the internal combustion engine free of government subsidy, free of... Um, you know, uh, Wall Street ESG-ism, which isn't a word, but I just made up ESG-ism. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, let's have at it. I mean, let, let the electric vehicle stand on its own. And right now it's not. And if it were made to stand on its own, it would not meet the standard of the ICE. It just wouldn't. I mean, if, if you had to decide today what, what is the best way to transport products and goods and people across this country, it's still the internal combustion engine. And this is engineer. I mean, this is not. And once again, the engineer that I listen to, I mean, he says, build a statue for Elon Musk. I mean, he applauds Elon Musk. He thinks he's one of the most uh, innovative entrepreneurs in the history of mankind. But but he says right now, I mean, if you're, if you're carbon sensitive, if the reason you're driving an EV is you want to emit less carbon, then you need to drive, drive an internal combustion engine. Because the charging of the electric vehicle, I mean, you're burning more carbon than you would pumping gas in your internal combustion engine and driving to work. That's where we are. But but the American public have been hoodwinked into believing that that's not where we are. Because they won't be honest well, I mean, that, There you go, an honest debate. I mean, may, maybe that's the central problem. Someone texted me an hour ago and said, the biggest problem, we don't have honest people in charge. I mean, we just don't have honest people running the country. 843-661-0937. Let's go to a phone call, and then we'll take a break. Dale and Florence, good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. And, Ken, I just wanted to go back to what you were talking about before the guest, uh, about inflation and so forth. We've talked about this before, but it kind of gets lost. How, how much would if inflation go down if the United States start pumping oil and natural gas again, do you think? Is that the be-all, end-all answer, or because so many things are affected uh, by the price of uh, of gas, you know, moving goods and services, how would it really affect inflation right now if we if we turn the pumps back on? 
you guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. It's not just, uh, you know, oil turning into gas. I mean, oil turns into shingles and plastic and fibers. And, I mean, petroleum's a part of about, I mean, it would, I mean, it would decrease exponentially. I mean, there's no question about it. What percentage? I don't have any idea what the percentage would be. But if America invested in a energy infrastructure, I mean, if America had a vision for the next 25 years, energy infrastructure, let's say as part of this is the EV, as part of this is um is clean energy. I mean, solar panels, wind, um, hydrocarbon, I mean, yeah, I mean, hydrogen. I mean, everything's included in this. But we're not doing it. We're piecemealing our energy policy. And right now, we're depending on foreign, really and truly foreign adversaries to supply us with the oil we need. But but to Dale's point, it's not just transporting products and goods and people. Petroleum is in shingles. It's in plastic. It's in asphalt. It's in these, um these what do you call them? These uh, panels on the wall, these our, our noise suppressing tiles, yeah. acoustic tiles on the wall. I mean, I'll bet you one, two, three percent of that is some sort of petroleum based. Uh, plastics around the windows as we look and no shot josh i mean oil is everywhere i mean it's everywhere so so being energy independent and producing as much oil as we consume leads to a less inflated economy no question about it leads to a stronger dollar and it goes back to my comments from uh, last week we've decided to run our economy prioritizing the financialization aspect and i'm talking about synthetic derivatives and quantitative easing China is investing in manufacturing. Russia is investing in energy production. We've decided to kind of farm our manufacturing out to China, farm a lot of our energy production, not to Russia, but but to the Middle East. And, and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're hedge fund happy. 843-661-0937, back in a few. We've done a better job today of explaining ourselves than we did um, yesterday. And once again, when I don't explain myself well, and I don't really understand an issue. It doesn't bother me. I mean, there are a lot of things about the world. I John Mellencamp has a line in a song. You ready? There are a lot of things I know and a lot of things I don't know. I fall in that camp. There are a lot of things I know, but there are a lot of things I don't know. But in the world of business, I feel like because of the way my dad raised me in family business and my having to run the business after my dad unexpectedly died in 2004, it forced me to to kind of grow up and really develop a a business and an economic acumen that, that I mean we had 100 employees I mean, they're, they're all of a sudden not depending on my dad but depending on me and my brother to make good decisions and you better understand the complexities of business so when I explained to Fed yesterday uh, about some of the um some of the practicalities of what they're trying to do they're trying to balance managing inflation with the uh the situation or the economic situation of America and commercial debt and, you know, office space and all these other things play into that. And I just think I did a lousy job yesterday of explaining something that I understand. When I start talking about climate change and do a lousy job, it's because I don't really understand it, <laughs> nor does anybody else. But we've adopted an official stance on climate change. Rev, I'll defer to you. What is Wake Up Carolina's official stance on climate change? We just don't know. And I think if anybody disagrees with us, they're a moron. Because <laughs> nobody knows exactly right. what the temperature of the planet Earth. I check the weather in Paulies every day. They can't tell me what it's going to be tomorrow. Because I'm counting on a pretty day late tomorrow afternoon. And, you know, one day it looks that way. And the next day, so the models say, we're not sure about what the weather will be in Paulie's tomorrow, but we know what it'll be 100 years from now in Antiqua. Um, good luck. Good luck with that. Hey, when a guy skips a, uh, a meeting, when a guy plays hooky for a week, 
I mean, he's, he's fair game, right, Ref? No, sure. I mean, am I right? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So SCGOP Chairman <laughs> Drew McKissick and co-chair of the National Party had, dare I say, bigger and better things to do. I think he was somewhere doing something is what mm, I had. He was taking care of business, I'm sure. Drew, yeah. good morning. How are you? <laughs> good morning, sir. And might I say, by the way, that it is a true wise man who knows what he does not know. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I've learned the hard way. I've learned the hard way. Experience is expensive. Is what I'll is what I'll say. I want I want to ask you a question, and I want to get this is a bit philosophical, but you would be the perfect guy to ask this question. And I had it teed up last week, but you had some things to take care of, and we certainly um, understand that and appreciate you joining us. And I mean that, Drew. You're a um a central figure in Republican politics today, and uh, and I've got kind of a I mean it's an elementary question, but I think it's important. Why does a political party exist? Why do political parties exist? All right. Well, the main thing is uh, in countries that are blessed to have self-government, we understand what the most important part of that phrase is, right? Self. I mean, this is something you can't outsource to someone else. Uh, and if you choose to do so, by the way, that's one of the few guarantees in life. You're guaranteed not to like the result, generally speaking. Uh, so we, we have this wonderful thing in this country called self-government. Well, how do we go about governing ourselves? Well, generally speaking, people who uh, have similar values tend to coalesce around one another, and the more that they do so, the more they build coalitions and the more they try to work together to elect people who feel the way that they do to take the, the, the things that they believe into public policy. Uh, and the political parties uh, themselves, and I would say specifically now to the political committees, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, but the South Carolina State Republican Party Committee, the Republican National Committee, uh, the Florence County uh, Republican Committee, their jobs are to come together and actually elect candidates to win campaigns. In other words, you know, we've come around a common set of uh, ideals as Republicans in our platform. Uh, it's a consensus document. Nobody gets everything they want. You know, you get two politicians together, you've got three different opinions generally. Uh, it's a consensus document. But what do we then do to actually try to elect people to carry those principles in the government? Well, we've got these committees who get together to identify other people who feel like we do to get them to turn out in elections and vote for our candidates. At the, at, at the heart of it, that's why political parties exist, because we've got self-government and we want to see our values translated into public policy. Okay, and the two parties have different worldviews. I mean, the, the liberals are more sympathetic. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, uh, but but and yeah. here, here's where I want to get your take on, because I think this is an important yeah. issue that the Republicans are dealing with today. Or, let me back up. This Republican is dealing with today. I think historically the Republican Party has done a good job of promoting the institution of conservatism. Um, it, it's thoughtful. It's cerebral. Uh, the modern intellectual conservative of the National Review and, and William Buckley and George Will. I think the left has done a better job of imposing their values, imposing their beliefs. Can you do both? Can you promote the institution of serious, thoughtful conservatism while winning the political battle for the heart and souls of American voters. That sounds like a campaign speech. It certainly, yeah. it certainly is not. But, well, but I, I do believe the left has whipped our butt and imposing beliefs, imposing mm -hmm. ways of life via the political system. Well, and a couple of things along those lines. One, when it comes to uh, uh, philosophy. So, I mean, you can't impose philosophy per se. I mean, that's, you know, if you change my mind against my will, I'm of the same opinion still, as the old saying goes. Uh, you know, so our job is conservatives. Uh, and as you point out, it's a more, for lack of a better word, cerebral 
uh, philosophy than, say, liberalism. Uh, you know, liberalism is all about emoting. It is about feelings, you know, and we are swamped in and marinating feelings all day. I mean, it's so bad that, you know, the, the first question out of a sportscaster's mouth after somebody scores a winning touchdown was, how did that make you feel? You know, I mean, everything is about how we feel today, not how we think, not what we do, the results of what we do. But conservatism is just that. It's about conserving. Conserving what? Conserving traditions, culture, society, things that we have seen in history that actually work to provide a stable, peaceful environment for ourselves and our families. Uh, liberalism, again, is about feelings. Uh, so, but when it comes to winning campaigns, it's about how can you get people, you know, who, number one, you want to collect the people who think like you do and get them to the polls, but then you've got, in many cases, people in the middle. How do you convince the people in the middle? And if you're not doing a good job communicating how what you believe is directly relevant to that person, then you're not going to get them. You're not going to motivate them. Or they're not going to vote for you. And they're more likely to vote on the basis of a feeling. Liberals have done a good job building campaigns, in many cases, around feelings, and also in places where they can't win at the ballot box, you know this, throughout the last 50, 60 years in our society, they've, you know, retreated to the judiciary. Well, let's try to impose what we believe via judicial fiat in many places. Uh, and, again, something that's alien to conservatives. You know, we believe we have a constitution that, you know, says what it says, means what it says. It's the rules of the road, as it were, we're supposed to abide by. That's a general conservative judicial philosophy. So, you know, they're the ones who are more likely to be radical in abusing the rules of the game to get what they want. And when they can't, you know, if necessary, uh, if they're not able to actually emotionally uh, blackmail, if you will, people to support them in the ballot box with their message. Drew, is one of your jobs, and I'm getting into your business here, but I think you're, you're providing a, a kind of an inside look at, at how parties work. Is one of your jobs to help reconcile what the donors want and what the base wants. I'll use as an example. Mitch McConnell has a less than 20% approval rating against Republican mm -hmm. or up Republican primary voters, but he's a second ranking, you know, Republican in America behind Speaker uh, McCarthy. So is one of your jobs to reconcile what the interests of the donor class, we got to have them. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, right. but you've also right. got to have the base turnout and cast the ballots that allow yeah. you to win these races. Is that, a, is that a job of yours, and how hard a job yeah. is that? Absolutely. And it falls back into what I call three fundamentals of politics. Whether you're running for school board or president of the United States, there are only three fundamentals that are involved here. One is your message, which we just talked about, what you believe and how you believe, how you want to convince people to support you. Two is the manpower, the organization. And then number three is raising the money to make number one and number two possible. That's it. Everything revolves around one of those three things. So as a, uh, you know, a, a party leader, one of your jobs is to bring the people who can make those three things happen to the table. Uh, how do we get the political coalition together around the consensus and then get them to agree that this is how we need to work together to elect people who will carry that consensus uh, you know, into governance? And, of course, we marinate in national media all day long. You know that. Uh, and the latest outrage of, you know, some elected politician or Republican on one end of the country is, you know, uh, in the face of everybody on the other end of the country. So, you know, whether that person actually represents them or not, you know, tends not to matter in many cases. They're just upset. And it, and it all bleeds into what I call, quote, the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party is, is not one institution. You know, it is a collection of institutions all across the country. One elected politician is not the Republican Party. 
uh, as I explained earlier, you know, we have political committees. You know, I'm the, the co-chairman of a national political committee, the chairman of a state political committee, uh, who's charged with just working to win the campaigns. And as you rightly point out, that means we need to get donors to the table to actually support our efforts. And then we need to have a convincing winning message to get folks out to go and to, to do the things we need to do to win at the, uh, at the polls. And it's, it's, it's a balancing act every day. It's not where you're trying to please, you know, saying one thing to one group and one thing to another. You know, I try to consistently say the same thing to both of them. We all need one another. We can't always get everything that we want. But we can come together successfully around a conservative political consensus. And especially here in South Carolina, you know, this is a right of center state, uh, you know, and we have, if you've seen, especially there in the PD, we've been doing better and better in each election cycle, you know, over the course of the last six years. Uh, we've seen great growth uh, in the Republican Party and our success out that way. And it comes back again to those principles that we believe in. Drew, do we already formulate a plan? I mean, you got a guy 81 years old going to run for reelection, more likely than not be the nominee of the Democrat Party. 75% of Americans believe we're on the wrong track. The majority of Americans mm-hmm. don't want him to run for re-election. Is that where the die is cast, whether it's Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Scott, whether it's Haley, whether it's um, Hutchinson? I mean, are, are we already formulating a game plan at the national level about Biden and his failures, or do we accentuate the, the characteristics and traits of whomever wins the Republican primary? And when do we do that? So a lot of that is driven, you know, everything in politics is timing. Uh, and, and I say that in, in the sense that there's a, something different to do at different stages of each election cycle. So the cycle is two years. Uh, you know, since the last election, you go and you reevaluate what you did and where in different places, lessons that, you know, you have learned, whether positive or negative. You know, uh, uh, only an idiot doesn't learn from losing. If you lost something somewhere, you need to understand why. Uh, so that's the only thing worse than losing. Uh, and then begin to, to formulate one, the organizational plan, the infrastructure that we need to build. If you think about it roughly on a calendar from now until, say, June of next year, this is the infrastructure that we want, the highway, if you will, that we want built for whoever our presidential nominee may be by the time they walk out of that convention in Milwaukee next year. Uh, by the time we have Senate nominees in some of these states, they're going to have uh, you know, targeted Senate contests. This is the infrastructure that we want built. Here's the money we got to raise right now to actually make that possible as we meet that, that mile marker. Then once we have that nominee, then it comes back into issues of messaging. Uh, you know, and, and each candidate is going to be different. You know that. I mean, how you would market, you know, one candidate versus another candidate is different based on their strengths and weaknesses, their personality, uh, you know, different elements of their agenda and their appeal. Uh, but in terms of Biden, I mean, we know that there'll definitely be a contrast there, no doubt about it. Uh, and he makes that easier and easier every day of the week. Is it easier? I got to ask you this, and I'll let you get out of here. But then, is it easier to run against Biden with a younger guy or a younger lady? You know, that's that's a good question. Uh, you know, contrast, you know, physical contrast, if you will, is, is good sometimes in terms of you know, whether it's demographic or whether it's age you know, or, or, or sex or whatever. Uh, yeah, but we've got such a stark contrast now in terms of track record to be able to, you know, hold one candidate up against another. Uh, I mean, in this whole contest is going to come down to, you know, probably seven states. You and I can both bet our house right now on how 50, I mean, uh, 42 or 43 states are going to vote when it comes to the presidential race next year. And the other ones is where the contest will play out. Uh, and the question is whether or not those type of things or which of those type of things matter most in those states. 
Drew, do you think it's important? I, I lied. I said that was the last question. This is honestly the last. Well, I mean, in my mind, I got this busy head syndrome, and my mind goes a million miles an hour. You're 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 making you're in the room when decisions are made on behalf of national elections. Will the Republicans do what it takes to match or try and match what the Democrats have done in the unconventional methods of voting? Absolutely, one hundred percent. That's one of the things that we've been talking about and working on now. Is and I go back to that we're talking about making those infrastructure changes and those those planning changes to do just that. There are certain states around this country where Democrats have changed the rules of the road in terms of how elections are run, uh, things that we may not like. And if we can change it legislatively, fine. If Democrats run the place, then we can't change it legislatively. Can we change it judicially? If we can, fine. If we can't, we've got to be better at those rules of the road in those respective states than they are. In California, that means we need to be better at ballot harvesting than they are. We don't like ballot harvesting, but hey, that's the losers don't make policy. Nobody calls a guy who lost and asks him what the tax rates ought to be, right? Or whether or not CRT ought to be in our schools. Uh, so yes, that's a number right now, number one priority in those states, especially of getting that right and getting better at the early turnout game than they are. Very well explained. I'll pledge my services. My specialty is campaign finance, just in case. Just in case you're uh, you're, you're curious or, or interested. I got you. I got you. <laughs> Drew, thank you a lot, man. You're a good guess, and you help us a lot sort through some of these um, some of these issues we aren't certain about. But I appreciate you taking time every Thursday morning to join us. Thank you again. Happy to do it. Y'all have a great one. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party. I was really glad to hear that last answer because that is a concern, and I see a lot about it on Twitter as well, that if the Republicans don't start learning how to play these games, we're just going to get beat every time. You ready? I'm going to give you a truck building body, a truck body building answer. If you don't ballot harvest, you're going to get your ass cut. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's another way to put it. It's just as simple as that. If we don't harvest ballots in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona, here I go again. I don't know if there's an SEC of how many times you, we're going to get our ass cut. But if we do, we got a chance uh, to win to the ballot box in those states that do allow very creative ways in casting and counting ballots. Let's go to the phone. Bruce in Darlington. Hey, Bruce, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Hey, Bruce, how are you? All right. Climate, just a minute. Um, what's in the air that humans require when they breathe in? That would be oxygen. Okay. We're talking about carbon dioxide. Do you know of anything that requires copper, carbon dioxide to live? Uh, trees and plants and, yeah. Okay. So, of everything that we eat originated, whether it's plant or animal, originated from plants. So, plants are kind of important to us. Right now, the um, carbon dioxide drops in the water parts per million. Do you know... At what level plants start having a problem living because the carbon dioxide is too low? I do not. I didn't sign up to take a pop quiz now. (laughs) Right. It's roughly about 200. But in the past, scientists tell us the Earth's carbon dioxide has been as high as 4,000 parts per million. So we are on the extreme low end of what carbon dioxide has ever been on the Earth. We are very close to where our plant, if we do decide we're going to pull all the carbon out of the air, the plants need that. Kind of uh, not good for the human rights. Very well explained. Uh, 
it's uh, it, it's always said somebody's making money off of it, and as long as they can make money off of it, they'll say whatever they want. Amen. Thank you for the call. Appreciate the um the the scientific analysis. Look, there there's a lot of people are motivated. The fast twitch is kicking in. The you know a lot of people are motivated. <laughs> What's left of the fast twitch? I see that. And th- th- there were more when I left here yesterday. Not quite as many when I got here the day. Kind of an inside joke. If you weren't up early mm-hmm. this morning, if you wanted them sleep in Democrats, you didn't hear us talk about um, the struggles of stash. Um, <laughs> go back and listen to the archive later. It'll be listen to the early part of the show this morning. Look, there's an impetus within nearly everybody to do good there, there are some that that believe you, you you do well by doing good um i the esg kind of reminds me of that i mean in essence that, that there's a human compulse that says man i want to do good but i want to do well and i believe if i do well i end up doing good kind of kind of god's blessing you can't outgive god i mean that's kind of a religious you know that there, there's a religious sense there um i and it's just a little bit weird to kind of compare it to religion, but I think climate change is somewhat like religion. You know, I have an obligation to God, to my, I mean, I don't know Josh that well, but when Josh started associating with us, my, 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 my Christian belief says I got to be kind to Josh. I got to be good to Josh. I want Josh to do well. Um, I mean, Josh may be a heathen. I don't know. Um, he doesn't know me. You, you don't see where I'm mm-hmm. headed, but there's a, there's a natural impulse I have to want to be kind and decent to Josh. And I want Josh to do well because he's kind of, he's one of us now. So, so I think that carries over in politics. I think human beings naturally gravitate toward things where, where they feel emotionally invested and there's some do well to do good there. And I think the climate change crowd have preyed on people's emotions. I think liberals by and large are more emotional than conservatives. I mean, I, I do believe that. I, I think the majority, I think if you could do so, kind of a psychoanalysis of liberals and conservatives, the liberal would be a more emotional being. Um, dare I say, I'll probably get in trouble for this. I don't think it's off the air, but I think the, the majority of women vote Democrat because they're a mo, more emotional. I mean, I think women will admit that. I mean, they're, they're emo, you know, men are more analytical. Women are more emotional. My wife and I have this struggle with raising kids and running a household. I'm more analytical. Don't ask your dad that. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. Let, let me let me try to make sense of it. You know what I mean? She she's an emotional. I mean she she's a female. She's more likely to do something based on how she feels about something. I'm, I'm not saying she always does things based on feelings. I'm not saying I never do things based on. Of course I do things based on feelings. I'm not a Vulcan. I mean I'm I'm an emotional creature. But but my wife is probably more emotional than I am. She's going to make more decisions based on emotion. So when the Democrats say, you can help us save the planet. I mean, don't you want to do that? I don't want to do that. I want to be on that team. You know, there's two teams. (laughs) There's a team destroying the planet, a team trying to save the planet. sounds like that? Yeah, I want to be on that team to save the planet. (laughs) (laughs) You see where I'm... I want to do that. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, I remember Smokey the Bear said, only you can prevent forest fires. And I said... Oh, not just me. I mean, let, let, That's let, too much yeah, pressure. Let it be a lot of people. <laughs> Smokey, don't tell me because I was a kid. Like, only you can prevent forest fires. Like, I'm scarred for life. You know, I, I run around with fire extinguishers everywhere. You know? <laughs> oh, my. Well, let, only you. You know, only you can prevent forest fires. And I remember, like, my mom, mm, I don't want to. I'm, I'm seven. <laughs> you know, Smokey, stop. I'm seven. I, I can't. I can't. You can't put all that on me. Um, 
but but I you know so, so I do I do believe there is a kind of a um I mean, there's a psychoanalysis to be had here and and I think you know the the reason more women vote Democrat than Republican is women are more emotionally affected or inclined and I think when you say hey you can help us save the planet from burning to smithereens I want to be there I, I want to be on that team we, we don't have any analysis we don't have any data. I mean, we've got a little bit. It's sporadic. It's inconsistent. You know, um, global warming became climate change when? When the globe stopped warming. Right. <laughs> That's a pretty good time to stop global warming. When the planet stops warming, Eight four three six six one. I don't want to get too far behind. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We've done a bit of a disservice to the musical industry by not playing a Gordon Lightfoot bumper. I mean, I think we yeah, must true. do that at some point in time um, today. Gordon Lightfoot would have been, uh, is it fair to say, Rev, he would have been a little of you and a little of me? I, I think mean, so. He was, he was a very exceptional song. He was exceptionally regarded as a songwriter, but he had some commercial and mainstream success. He did. He had some hits that you would consider, you know, pop kind of soft rock type hits. Remember Sundown mm-hmm. and the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also is well regarded as one of the folksy singer songwriters that you like. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I mean, I like. I he was buddies with Brian and Dylan, and you know some of the other weirdos who write <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep and intentional lyrics. Yeah, so so he probably would fall into both camps. I give him credit for having some hits and making some really good songs. He, he would have been somebody that that you respected and I respected as well. Um, so. Um, you know, our condolences, obviously, to the Gordon Lightfoot fans and family for that. Let's right. go to the phone. Mike in Darlington, hello, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Uh, great show, as always. I wish I'd gotten home when uh, Drew Mike, if it sucked, would you say it sucked? <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> I mean if it, cause, because it does suck at times. I appreciate you uh, being kind to us. But if it sucked, would you say, hey, man, this show really sucks. Yesterday's was good, but this one doesn't. What? I, you hadn't really done it yet, but you've got them come close once or twice. <laughs> but I wouldn't say you've you, you you I wouldn't say you've blown it all together because you're you're really good at recovery. You're pretty quick on your feet. There in you most go. Cases. There you go. Thank you, Mike. And, Appreciate uh, that. And, and there, there you go. But uh, I don't. Uh, if you could read my mind, I think that would uh, uh, have to be in there if we're going to talk about. Uh, uh, women and being more emotional. I think more women like that one than just about anything else he did. But uh, the uh, aside from Gordon Lightfoot, I I would really wanted you to, uh, Drew to uh, elaborate more on what they were doing, what Rona uh, Romney Nay Romney uh, McDaniel is doing to uh, get. Uh, get the uh, vote harvesting machine and get the infrastructure in place to win some of these key states because they can't just be there and participate. Uh, we've got we've got to win some of those states, or I don't think we're going to have a country. They're going to completely blow up the country if you give these people six years. And the other than that, this climate thing has always been a scam. We know, we know with all probability how to cool down the environment dramatically. 
And it's a horrible way to do it, but we could sure do it if we needed to and just have a nuclear exchange and we could t- cool it down a, a degree or two. But I think uh, your uh, co- uh, other caller from Darlington had it uh, right. We can stand a lot more CO2. We can't stand a lot less because we're dependent on those plants, whether they like it or not. Even insects are dependent on plants. So uh, that's that's pretty much it. But this this is a cult we're dealing with, and we're li- dealing with some sort of social contagion that's just outrageous the way people are going for all these crazy ideas that were way out on the periphery for uh, centuries, if not millennia. And all of a sudden, they've become uh, center, center, top of mind of everyone. Well, and and uh, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And and it goes into, I mean, you know, it's, it's fun to have intellectual debates. I mean, it's fun to hypothesize. It's fun to theorize. It's fun to to exchange ideas and views and, and perspectives. I mean, that's a lot of, but when you start toying around with $33 trillion of debt and transforming our economy's energy source from something that has been unbelievably dependable for a long, long time because of political edict, because of some, some government order. I mean, there, let's take Davos for an example. I mean, there's 2,700 people. I mean, I asked, couple of breaks ago how many people get to Davos? 2700 people representing 130 countries i mean there there's some political heavyweights that there's some economic heavyweights there's some I, I guess social awareness heavyweights they all congregate in davos rev didn't get invited i didn't get invited i don't think josh is on the list but um i mean i know i mean it's kind of it here's when you know you're close to being a big shot you ready i was in a meeting at usc couple of months back, I told Rev this, and beside me sat a gentleman, and I knew the gentleman was a, uh, you know, a well-regarded USC alumna. I mean, I knew that. I mean, I knew he was very respected. So, so I pull out my, um, you know, my notebook, and I began making notes, transcribing, if you will, and he pulled out a little book at the top. It said World Economic Forum. And I remember saying, you want one of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you, you're one of them. Um, and, but, but I, you know, and, and just as genuine and decent and kind of guys you'll ever meet in your life, the one commonality we had is our love for the Gamecocks, and we were doing some things or, or brainstorming about some things we felt could better situate our Gamecocks against those um, evil tigers from the, from the upstate. But, um, but there are 2,700 people that go there. So of the of the twenty seven hundred people that go there, I mean John Kerry's there. I mean he's the climate change. Excuse me, the climate czar. You know he's um he leads an envoy every year to Davos. Somebody's in Budapest. He's in Prague. I mean he's all over the world talking about. I mean what qualification does Kerry have to lecture to world leaders and and, and economic leaders about the climate? None. Zero. And, and it's so interesting to me when people say, well, the science is settled. 90% of the scientists agree that the climate is changing and man is largely contributing to that climate. The next chapter of the book should be how many of those climate scientists were paid by the federal government via grants? Nearly every one. I mean, of the 90% who say we're sure we're right, 100% were paid for the, by the government. So, so once again, remember Drew's conversation about trying to reconcile the donor class and the base voter? 
I mean, I think the classic example of that is how can Mitch McConnell be minority leader, former majority leader, when only 14, 16, 18% of the Republican primary voters approve of him because he's in good graces with the donor class. Now, I didn't want to pr- push um, Drew too hard on that because I could have been confrontational and said, Drew, I mean, you're the co-chair of the National Party. We got a guy running the party or, or having a lot to do with running the party. But McConnell runs the game. I mean, he runs the game for the donor class. So this is all about the donor class. Money's the answer. Now what's the question? So, so it's, it's, it's global warming for a long time until it ain't. And you know when it ain't, when the climate stops, excuse me, when the globe stops warming, and for, a, what, 16 or 18 years? Now, see, to me, that means nothing. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, whatever the climate has done for 20 years means nothing to me. Zero. Whatever the climate has done for 100 years means nothing to me. Zero. What, what the climate has done for 200 years means nothing to me. Zero. What is a trend line on the climate? I mean, that would be an interesting question. That may be the second most interesting question. To me, the most interesting is, what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth supposed to be? If you're a man my age, you, you, you kind of relate to this. Menopause will cause you to have the, the, the perpetual flu, the cold. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're married to a woman who's experiencing that transition in life, um, you better have sweatshirts with hoodies or you'll die of, I mean, you, you'll be frostbit for the rest of your, for the re- so, so, so I have a optimal temperature for our home, but my wife is dealing with some stuff that, that she believes the optimal temperature is, you know, 40 degrees below what, what I think it should be. W- what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth supposed to be? And then what, what, is the, what is the trend line you trust? I mean, the secular world says the planet has been here in excess of what? Somewhere between four and eight billion years? I mean, good luck finding that answer. Well, we've carbon dated. You know, we, we've, we, we, we've looked at these, uh, the, the, the rest and residue with the carbon, fi- carbon dating. And I, I mean, I hear all this and I'm going like, okay. I mean, who knows the cheetah's colorblind? That's kind of my, my answer to all those questions. <laughs> um, uh, but, but. What trend line do you trust? I mean, do you really? I mean, are we going to base uh, the the energy source evaluation of our nation on a twenty year trend line, or a forty year trend line, or a sixty year trend line? Well, we've never industrialized. Like, yeah, no, but we had times in in our history where the climate did well. We had an ice age. I mean, it's pretty well documented. It's historically accounted. We had an ice age. Did did industry cause the planet to warm then? Or was it the natural cycle? Here, you ready? God has the warranty on the planet Earth. Man has a responsibility to be good stewards or to be good stewards of God's eternal plan. But but I don't know that God has let this group know more than that group about when he calls the proverbial warranty in. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hey, I don't want to name drop, but when I was in Columbia, our state capital, I saw people who understood the procedural advantages of having been there a long time. I don't want to call names, but certain senators knew how to play certain games within the body politic that that others didn't. Now, if you've been there a long time and you're really smart, that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of ways to overcome being in uh, the minority. Now, I'm a Republican, South Carolina, obviously being a red state. But I watched two or three Democrats work diligently trying to advance certain things that they believed in in a, in a, in a very procedural 
sort of way. I mean, the blunt force of a majority is uh, what it is, but um, the Democrats are now um, trying to bypass the Speaker of the House on this debt ceiling increase. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I am well. Good morning. So discharge petition is what I'm understanding the Democrats are trying to utilize. Um, Kind of walk us through that, Jared, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I mean, let's be clear that this would be kind of a a last-ditch sort of Hail Mary attempt, right, that would come about probably only after there was some sort of fiscal uh, catastrophe. But what a discharge petition essentially allows you to do in the uh, House of Representatives is um, skip all of the committee and all of the procedural steps to a piece of legislation or a particular resolution uh, by getting 218 signatures. 218 is the outright majority right in the House of Representatives. So if you can get every Democrat to sign on to this, all they would presumably need is like four or five Republicans to join them, and that would force an up or down vote on this measure that they have that would be a straight up uh, debt limit extension uh, raise without any uh, of the other uh, spending cuts that, that House Republicans passed. A couple of problems with it. One, um, it's not automatic. Uh, these things have to, it's called ripen. These, these sort of measures have to ripen. So there are time constraints. So you can't even start the process. I, I think you have sort of like 18 or 20. It, it's sort of, they measure it through legislative days, not like regular human days. Um, and then um, uh, also after it ripens, there's still time before you could actually vote. So my understanding is the soonest something like this could even be voted on, would even be triggered in the House, is after June 1st, which, of course, is after the Treasury Secretary has said it's possible that this default would happen, Uh, which is why I say it's kind of like a long-shot bid. I think it's still much more likely that you see some sort of agreement reached between the President and the Speaker of the House uh, before it came to this. But to your earlier point, it shows that Democrats Um, are trying to to use what muscle they have in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives is a pretty miserable existence if you're in the minority. It is an entirely majoritarian-run chamber of Congress, not like the Senate. The Senate, a lot of things still require 60 votes, still require unanimous consent. Republicans still have some muscle that they can flex in the Senate. Democrats don't have much muscle they can flex in the House unless they're able to do things like this that require just a few number of Republicans to join them. And they believe that if we were really staring down the, the barrel here of a uh, of a default, that there would be enough Republicans to jump on board to prevent any sort of economic fallout. Jared, that is so well explained. Appreciate your time. And thank you for that um that explanation. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. That was just, I mean, so I, I can't add anything to that. I mean, it's, um uh, you know, the, the House of Representatives, I mean, stick with me for a second. I talk a lot about political blunt instruments. There is no more blunt an instrument than a majority, especially in the House. I mean, whether it's Columbia, whether it's Washington, being in the minority in the House sucks. I mean, it really does. There's some things you can do in the Senate. I mean, you know, one monkey don't stop the whole show. Uh, uh, Before some of the changes were made in South Carolina State Senate, I would argue they could. I would argue they absolutely um, could. But the House, once again, is a different animal it's kind of a manufacturing plant, and you're going to manufacture what the majority wants manufactured. I mean, you just are. You can go on MSNBC and express your, your discontent. I mean, you can rail against the majority and what they're trying to do by irresponsibly holding the um, the country's feet to the fire on debt. 
but but you are in the minority and it sucks. I mean, it really and truly sucks to be in the minority in a House of Representatives Senate, once again, a little less miserable, um, <laughs> uh, that being the case, especially when you got majorities that are slim as they are um, in the Senate today. You got Manchin Cinema, you know, concerned about their political well-being. Uh, Cinema in Nevada, Manchin, of course, in a state that Donald Trump still has a 70% approval rating. Manchin's got to be the most gifted politician in America. I mean, when you really think about the oddity the, the misalignment of a Democrat representing West Virginia. As Trumpy as South Carolina is, West Virginia is more. And, and, and Manchin figures out, I mean, you know, justice runs against him uh, this time. There's some talk out there that I've read that Manchin's been courted by no labels to run as an independent for president. That, that would be kind of interesting. Hmm. I don't think he could raise the money to be competitive, and he's a third-party candidate. The only guy that could potentially be an effective third-party candidate would be Trump. I mean, the name ID, uh, the, the the fact that people have already formed their opinions, pro and con, uh, you know, for and against um, Donald Trump. I think even liberal America believes that. I mean, e- even the liberal voters and, 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 you know, pundits saying, I mean, if anybody's going to make a run as a third-party candidate, I think Donald Trump would be the most likely suspect America's ever seen, uh, more so than Ross Perot. Tr- Trump's bombastic and narcissistic, but he's not quirky. Perot was kind of a quirky dude with big ears and had these charts and all, and people freak out when they see little guys with big ears and charts and all. You know what I mean? Less like, <laughs> not real inclined. Hey, what kind of candidate are you looking for? I'm looking for a little small guy with big ears and a bunch of charts. You know, it's, it's, plus he's rich. And a bit eccentric. That's the guy I'm looking for. But you look back on him now, and he was pretty perfect. Got, got about 19% of the, oh, very, very. I mean, it, you know, when, when you talk about the 10 or 12 most consequential politicians to never hold office, no, no doubt about it. I mean, he's probably the number one guy that, that has affected change in the weirdest way imaginable. But, yeah, when you're thinking about the characteristics of an elected official, he had very little going for him in that regard. <laughs> but, but he had an issue, and he sunk his teeth in. Um, and was right. I mean, you talked about prophetic. He was far more correct on issues that were coming down the pike. Uh, and, and the greatest, I guess, the you know, Perot's finest moment would have been that sucking sound you hear will be those jobs leaving America once NAFTA becomes law of the land. And that was prophetic. No question about it. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne has been holding on. So thank you, Daphne. You are on. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to go back to the previous conversation. I am a factual, uh, common-sense female, and I wondered why our children were being targeted so aggressively. And I thought back, well, the federal government intervened in public education so strongly that when the Ritland propaganda started, they figured that they would just, you know, subdue the children, make them listen. And that didn't work, so they did not want any critical thinkers in the schools. Well, I raised my children and my grandchildren to be critical thinkers. My grandchildren got in a lot of trouble for asking four different questions. The first one was about climate change, when my oldest asked if there or climate change is man-made, what about the ice age? 
uh, if climate change is man-made and we got to do away with carbon uh, and we exhale carbon and plants exhale oxygen, will that not eliminate and make the earth a barren place? And he asked also, what if uh, Al Gore believes what he says and the ocean is going to raise 20 feet, why does he build his mansion on the coast of California? And the other question that really got him in trouble was uh, Darwin's theory of of, uh, evolution. He asked the teacher, if it's a theory, why are you teaching it? And if we evolved from apes, why are there still apes? They don't want critical thinkers in school, and they are now going to the extreme with it. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. I've always believed that teaching the theory of evolution in public education is okay as long as it's couched as a theory. I mean, I, you know, I, I believe in intelligent design. I believe in creationism. I think that God breathed life into man. I think God, I mean, I think the Bible's right. I think the biblical account of the beginning of mankind is accurate, um, historically accurate, not just scripturally and spiritually um, kind of uh, enhanced, but, but rather an actual event that happened. Um, I can't begin to fathom it. You can't begin to fathom it, but you ain't God and I ain't God. So, so let, you know, let's establish that real, real out of the gate. But I've never had a problem with evolution being taught in, 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 you know, in educational facilities as a theory. I mean, I, I think it, it, it forces us to consider why do we believe. See, I, I believe that a lot of America are too lazy to make their own minds up. I mean, you know, Rujan was talking about, you know, the easy life, the good life, and, you know, you don't want complications, you don't want sweat, and you don't want difficulty. Um, Americans, by and large, don't want no trouble. And the best way to avoid trouble is just kind of go along and get along. Uh, what does water do? It runs downhill. What does it do? It avoids, I mean, it takes the path of least resistance. It goes around a rock. It goes around a can, around a bottle, around a, you know, whatever. Whatever impediment is in its way, it goes around that. So I think human society has been conditioned. Well, I can't speak to human society. American society has been conditioned to not question. Because if you begin questioning, you accept a degree of responsibility, Right. I mean, if, if I believe something to be untrue and I'm being taught something that I believe to be untrue, I, I, I think I'm, I'm forced to engage in, in kind of a counteractive way and in, in, in a confrontational sort of way. And most human beings, by their very nature, don't want controversy. They, want con- they don't want confrontation. And it goes back to people just don't want trouble. And I think, you know, the, um, the involvement in debate requires some effort. And, and we'd rather, I'll tell you what I think conservatives would rather do, liberals would rather do. They'd rather get their Kool-Aid from their uh, Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson. We can't get Tucker anymore. Tucker's making a lot of money doing nothing. I got to figure that out. Tucker's mm-hmm. making a lot of money. Good for him. Um, doing nothing. Well, I mean, you and I believe that the reason Tucker's being paid a lot of money to do nothing is what he was doing was affecting political change. Um, I stand by the comment there is not a single American journalist or media personality that I find interesting other than Tucker Carlson. You, you know, Rev, that's, that's, I'm being dishonest. I find Rachel Maddow what? interesting. I do. I, I think she is a very witty, 
smart, liberal. I mean, I didn't say I agree with much of what she said. Right. I disagree I with find nearly, her. Interesting. I find her very. I, mean, I interesting. think she's good at her job, and she's very you know, articulate her views very well. But isn't that interesting? I mean, no, by definition, really. isn't that interesting? If you're good at your job, if you articulate your worldview in a in a in a way that stirs your curiosity, I mean, isn't that kind of interesting? She's not interesting well, to me. Uh, but but you're you're being unfair here. No. I mean, you're being too big a homer. I mean, I get you no. got. You, well, I, mean, I mean, I mean, Hannity does the same thing. Beck Hannity does the same says thing. nothing interesting. Well, but, 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 but he's good at his job out. and he articulates no, his views. No, let, let me say, he's well paid at his job. <laughs> he is extremely well paid. <laughs> if his job is to garner an audience, he's good at his Tell job. Tell me something that Sean Hannity has said in the last year that you find interesting. <laughs> Joe Biden bad. <laughs> no, I mean, no, okay, Joe Biden bad. Boy, that, that's a getting out there now. I mean, that's, that, that's a heavy lead. Yeah, I just I, right? I played no, into what but, you're but saying. But you there. would agree that, that, that Tucker makes you scratch your head a little bit. I mean, when Tucker, the, the, the greatest compliment, I mean, I'm a pundit. I'm an opinion monster. The greatest compliment one pundit or opinion monster can give to another is, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Because it's my job to think about things in different sorts of ways and to try and articulate these opinions I have about these issues I try to study and research. And, and, and Limbaugh and Tucker were the only two people in my orbit that ever said things that made me go, wow, hadn't thought of that before. And, and, and you know, Maddow does that a little bit. Now, now once again, I disagree with about 80%, probably 99% of what she says, but she does make me curious about, wow, how can uh, an obviously smart lady believe that we know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now? I mean, that, that's kind of what she articulates. She said something the other day that was interesting to me. Okay, here you go. I'll give you an example. Okay. She said the other day that she felt the blue states had to pass laws to protect themselves from the red states. <laughs> that, that's that's pretty, interesting to well, you? I mean, To me, it's very interesting. Why are blue states passing liberal laws? I mean, they're, they're, you know, the federal government makes it real hard to make monumental changes, right? I mean, the, 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 the co-equal branches of government, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Declaration, I mean, it, our government, our federal government was intended. I mean, this is Jeffersonian influence. I mean, Jefferson really, really made it hard for the government to decide overnight we're going to wildly swing one way or the other. Now, the left is winning. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The culture wars, the policy wars, the, 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 the right is still serving the institution of conservatism, and the left is imposing these values and these beliefs and these views. So the left is winning the game. But, but, I just, she says things at times that I find interesting. When she said that, I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. Now, now, whether she believes it or not, I don't know. Is it to be a provocateur? Is it to be kind of an information agent? Don't know. But Tucker did a lot of that. I mean, Tucker said things that you would go, wow. I mean, I hadn't, you know, I, I mean, I, I think Jeff would agree to this. I mean, I'm using Jeff as an example. He's kind of our Juan Williams. I think Jeff would say, um, yeah, I mean, Tucker said things that were outrageous. He said things that were untrue, but but occasionally he said things that I found you know, you know a bit interesting. I find Rachel Maddow to be interesting. I, I really and truly do. I'm thinking about who else I find interesting. Um, I can think of a name, not on the liberal side, but Victor David Hansen. Uh, yeah, he writes a lot of interesting things. Um, he's an intellect. He's um. He's kind of a, a hodgepodge of modern intellectual conservatism meets America first, that there's a pragmatism in Victor David Hansen 
that I think he less than willingly accepted. I mean, I think he fancies himself as an, as an intellect, but he sees the America First movement as kind of a, um, here I go with the other political blunt instrument sort of movement. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's some people on the left that I find interesting. Um, David Axelrod says things that I find interesting. I, I'm very disagreeable with what Axelrod says, but Axelrod says things at times, and I'm going, okay, I hadn't thought of that. that that's a fair point. I, I, I disagree with it, but I can't be completely dismissive of it. And I, I think Tucker was outrageous. He, he was a provocateur. Um, he, he was kind of a, I mean, I think he was a convert. Some don't. Some think he's a fraud and a phony. I get that. But I think he's a convert. But, but Tucker would say things occasionally that I'm like, damn, I mean, I hadn't thought of that. And I think of everything. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I, thought well, of, let me, I thought of another name, Tom Friedman. Okay, Friedman's an interesting, no, no yeah. doubt about it, very interesting guy. You, you hear Friedman speak and you're like, oh, okay, here he goes. I mean, here he goes railing against America first, railing against, you know, us Neanderthal conservatives. And all of a sudden he'll say something. I'm going, hmm, okay, touche. But right. th- th- there's a point for your side. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Yeah, we keep fooling around with these electric vehicles. We'll all be riding a horse back to work like we did in the uh, in the Josie Wales days. <laughs> is our number. I'm trying to figure out why you say things like Rachel Maddow is interesting. I mean, are you just doing that to, you know, bother me and tick the listeners no, off? No, no. I, I think she's, I mean, she's a provocateur to some degree, Tucker. I mean, all of us are that, that are opinion monsters and allow, you know, a medium to express ourselves. But no, I think Rachel Maddow is an interesting lady. I think she's bright. I think she's articulate. I think she's opinionated. So if you're bright, articulate, and opinionated, to me, you kind of always end up being somewhat interesting. Now, I, I mean, I, she plays the game, but we play the game, Ref. Stop being sanctimonious. I mean, you and I play the game of um, kind of provocative, liberal, excuse me, conservative media punditry. The one thing I miss about Tucker, and I don't believe everything Tucker's ever said, but the one thing I miss about Tucker is he would say things that I haven't thought of. And and that's the ultimate compliment I could pay somebody who does something, um, you know, makes a lot more money with a lot larger audience, but it's still kind of in the same, it's in the same vein. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, so many topics today. Um, just just real quick, uh, you know, on, on the uh, – science uh evolution I, I i have this do you believe in the uh laws of physics jeff why do you call without comments but rather questions no, that no, interests I, me a lot i mean I'm, you you got yeah, these pre but i mean his style that's well, his I mean, thing but, but i mean of course is, but but, he, but but you ask certain questions that you not you, you know <laughs> require a certain <laughs> amount of wiggle room and i mean that's why i always respond to you with questions I'd rather know right. what you it's, think. It's a baseline. Okay, fair enough. And I, I, and I get I'm it. Saying, I mean, okay. it, it's sound I strategy. Believe. It's sound strategy, but my sound strategy has to be <laughs> to, to, to uh, it, I, I'm required to say, why don't you give comments, but rather, but rather questions? Yes, I believe in I, I, physics you know, and science. Of course I do. Right. Who wrote them? God did, right? Well, I mean, I think he did, but, but I, I would, you know, I atheists do don't. I, well, I mean, I but do atheists do. don't. You would agree no. that atheists don't. But I, I'm I'm not in that camp, so I can't. I'm not I'm not talking about that. Fair enough. But I'm, I'm and and so I'll, I'll say to you, if why would the, the natural selection not be a tool of God? It could be. I mean, it, it doesn't. It's not a mutual exclusive. Totally I mean, agree. If you 
you know, so it's, it's uh, when you talk about trying to make critical thinkers, nothing about what Darwin said goes against God. It went against the Bible in, in the church's doctrine back in the, uh, when did he write that? I think it was in the 1600s. Or, yeah. You know, okay, so it went against church doctrine then. So it got labeled as anti-God. But at that time, let's let's be honest. They threw Galileo in jail because he said the sun was was the center of the solar system. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so Jeff, let me ask um, you a question: Is is Christianity yeah. a theory? No. Some would argue it is. I'm not in that camp. No, no but, what, so, I mean, but the point, and I, we're, we're not we're not disagreeing. That the point, I've got no problem with Darwin being taught as a theory. I don't think Christianity should be taught in public education as a fact. Right. So here, here's the point. Like Darwin, when you say Darwin or, or evolution as a theory, the theory of evolution is is what Darwin wrote. The mechanism for evolution is natural selection, and that is real. You, you, you're arguing, and I agree with you. That the, the theory of evolution, whether it's Darwin or not, the theory of evolution is not exclusive of creationism. It's not. Okay, fair enough. I don't disagree with that. You know, yeah, I mean, like, uh, God, God is uh, the ultimate mathematician, right? Like, you know, the laws of physics, uh, the, the theory of gravity. Is, is gravity really a theory? You know, I don't see people stepping out a window to prove it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's. It's a it's a tired old debate, but people, you know, it doesn't have to be an affront to what you believe in God, you know. So that that's that. <laughs> I did, I you know, that one. I just I wanted to talk about, but this um this thing I've heard in the last couple of days, listeners saying like, well, we need to lower gas prices, we we need to pump more oil, like. Everybody understands that the U.S. government has no role in gas prices, right? The U.S. government has a role in allowing for oil exploration on government-owned property. And we believe there's a lot of oil that could be explored, or or there's a lot of exploration of oil that could take place if the government were to grant permission. And, And I think you'll agree, Trump was more willing to allow oil companies to explore than Biden is. Is is that a fair analysis? Uh, was he open? Republican administrations are always more open to drilling on federal lands. Okay. But you have to acknowledge we're producing more oil. We had a blip. It was on, it's always been on the rise, but it did dip during COVID. But our oil production is not down. It's not being stifled. Fracking has no. been. No, there's new, new wells all the time being created not not the the, the rate of increase in the trump administration is greater than the rate of increase in the biden administration do you do you believe that is an administration thing or is it a price point i would argue it's probably a collaborative i mean it's probably some of government policy and some of the private sector reacting to government policy i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you and and no jeff these are the you and i have debates you don't have the ability to make change. I don't have the ability to make change, but we're willing to have these debates that people far above our pay grade should be. My complaint this week has been the debates that you and I have had on the radio should be 
had by the people of Davos, the people of BlackRock, the people of, of the Republican leadership, the people of the Democrat, and we're not having those debates. That's my concern. But they are. Well, but, they, but they are having those debates. But I don't and think they're, they're much of a debate, a Jeff. That, but, but I don't think well, there's I, much disagreement there. No, and, and I'm not disagreeing. They're having those debates, but there's the debates to what is there in their best interest, not ours. So you agree that money's the answer now? What's the question? Yeah. Okay. What's the question is like the the question is um, who gets the money? I mean, that's the question. Do we stay beholden to this cartel that has existed since the turn of the century, uh, since 1900? I mean, Theodore Roosevelt broke the oil industry in the United States, and it's. And, and, and when you look at your gas prices and you, you see this Biden did it, I did that. And he points to the sticker on the pump. You really think he did it? No, did but, but I understand profit. it. No, I mean, I've run for office. I understand the political propaganda on both sides of the yeah. aisle. Jeff, let me, let me ask you this. I'd, I'd love to get your answer to this. And, and this is not a gotcha question. Mm-hmm. Am I, is it reasonable for me as a somewhat intelligent American to be concerned about how far and how fast we are going to throw fossil fuel under the bus. Is that, is that a reasonable analysis to make that I'm concerned, not, not whether we transition, but how quick we're trying to transition from fossil fuel to renewable clean energy. Um, you're, I, I, I believe you uh, have bought into some of the hyperbole and the, but you have it uh, doomsday, but you have it. I, I'm just saying, uh, look, is is a transition going to happen as fast as they say? No. Did did Kennedy make a bold prediction when he said we're going to go to the moon? He did. Do you do you shoot low or high? But I mean, if, if you go to the moon or not, my life doesn't change. I mean, if we get this wrong, I think you would agree. This is one of the macros. I mean, if if we're wrong, I mean, if some if some of the skeptics are right, some of those who believe, and there are a lot of engineers out there, there are a lot of economic experts out there that there's not a consensus about where we are in transitioning from fossil fuel and carbon-based economy or carbon-based power to green, renewable, clean energy, whatever descriptive word you want to use. I mean, if we get that wrong, that's a whole lot different than the Apollo landing in the ocean. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's human. I mean, it's American pride. It's American exceptionalism on trial. No question about that. But if we get this wrong, we live in a fundamentally different world. So, so that that's true. But let let me let me put it to you this way: You believe in capitalism and the free market, right? I do. Okay. Where do you see the energy companies investing right now? And do you think that they're dumb? No, but but the government is steering them. And I mean, I think no, the, no, no, no. I mean the 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 people who run the major American energy companies or the global energy companies, for that matter. They see the governments around the world driving energy production in a certain direction, and they're basically saying, okay, the governments of the world have decided that we're transitioning. We better get on board. I mean, I, th- I think government is absolutely playing a part in where these investments are made. They're being rewarded to invest in certain sectors and punished to invest in others. Sure they are. And, and we've always So that's that. not when capitalism. About- that's not the free market. Well- Okay, so can I ask you, like, was it capitalism when we switched from horsepower to automobiles? Who do you think built all the roads? Who do you think put the stoplights in? Who do you think paid for all that? 
The taxpayers. We did. Our government did. The taxpayers. Well, how is that any different? Right. How is that any different from what we're doing? Now? No, I'm not saying it's. Di- I'm just saying why aren't we? Why aren't we allowed to challenge? Why, why am I a skeptic or a denier when I say I don't believe certain things the government and the media and academia tell me? Why? Why am all of a sudden I'm an outcast? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm one of these guys that can't tell anything. I mean, I, I'm I'm dishonest. I, I mean, that's my problem. It's not what you, you believe or what. No, you don't. But no. but but you know as well as I do that that when I say things contrary to the mainstream narrative, I, I'm called a skeptic or a denier or someone who you know. I mean, and that's really and truly what they're saying is you won't fall in the line. Hey, welcome to the club. Well, good deal. <laughs> hey, Jeff, time. we got to take a break. We <laughs> got a guest on the other on the other side. Do before sure. we take our. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh, I don't know if we disagreed that much. Hey, um, health insurance is not as complicated as climate change, but it is complicated. Christian Levis runs a company called RealChoiceHealthcare.com. If you're under the age of sixty-five, you're reasonably healthy. You think you're spending too money, too much money on health care. You need to do this right now. Call eight three nine. 888-3970. You can also go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. Realchoicehealthcare.com. I mean, these are quality plans that they're they're chosen by you, they're managed by you, not the uh uh marketing market distorting government, but rather <laughs> you. I mean, it's your health, it's your choice, real choicehealthcare.com take a break back in just a few so right now they're my braids they'll hit a skid here before <laughs> long and they'll be revs braids okay <laughs> but they were my gamecocks when they swept florida that's the way they that were works. revs gamecocks when they lost two or three uh, to auburn but the season changing always reminds me that baseball is around the corner i remember when this this crowd tried to do the florence red wolves were forever i mean they, they'd become somewhat of an institution the barth family had devoted a lot of their personal uh, not just money, but, uh, you know, reputation. And along comes a group that says, we're going to change the name to the Flamingos. Everybody freaked out. <laughs> I don't want to change the name to the Flamingos, but I think it's gone over extremely well. And this group understands um, that minor league baseball is entertainment. I mean, it really and truly is. Sports is entertainment. What does the E and ESPN stand for? Entertainment. I mean, it, it's the entertainment yep. business. Uh, Mitchell Lister is the president of the Florence Flamingos. He's with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me on today. So let's talk a little bit about baseball and a lot about entertainment. Yes. Uh, so, so so the Florence Flamingos is a local baseball team. Uh, what league? I mean, it's a wooden bat league kind of, but but walk us through the um, who the Flamingos are. Yeah, so we are a college wood bat league team. Uh, Summer Collegiate is basically what we play. We're in this Coastal Plain League, which is a affiliation of summer wood bat baseball so there's cape cod leagues there's the north north woodwood leagues and then there's some others but we're the top three top two summer collegiate baseball uh league in, across the country so but to your point we focus on entertainment yes we want to have some good baseball players on the field but we want everybody in the crowd to have a good time. Yeah, because m- most people don't know the difference in aluminum bat to wood bat. Well, I mean, a, a, a wood bat, a aluminum bat will turn an average player into a really good player. Absolutely. Uh, and the pros want to see how you can play with a wooden bat. I mean, it comes sure. wood bat. Okay, let's let's go to the entertainment. Um, you guys profess and argue that you're the most affordable, fun time a family 
can have uh, around the PD region. So walk us through how you build a season's worth of entertainment. Yeah, so a lot of it is planning during the offseason. So what are we going to do promotions-wise to get people excited? We're doing something really cool on opening night this year. That's going to be Hollywood night. Hollywood night is going to be basically rolling out the red carpet for our fans. We are going to have our MC interviewing our fans as they walk through. What are they excited (laughs) about this upcoming season? So you get to be Matthew McConaughey for a day. You basically get to be the star of the show. (laughs) Good Uh, deal. Nice. And it's going to be things to just get them excited. Our fan or our players, rather than walking down the line being super boring, just with their head down, uh, we're going to have them walk through the gates uh, as they go to their dugout. And it's just going to be something super fun to open. Our whole complex is open now, so it's just a it should be a good time for everybody of all ages. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just opening night. You, nope. you have these sorts of events nearly every time you open the gates. Absolutely. So we have things like Star Wars nights. We have things like circus nights. We have things like... Uh, um uh hawaiian night hawaiian night we're actually wearing hawaiian style jerseys that will have collars we'll have flamingos all over it it's gonna look like a hawaiian shirt but it's gonna be our jersey that our (laughs) player wears that night and then we're gonna auction it off give it out to a local charity of the pre um the funds that we raise from that so Mitchell, a lot um, of people like doing a lot of things but money i mean the money's a finite resource yep. uh, people who have wealthy people can do what they want to when they want to but most families can't do that how important is affordability to that experience to the flamingos to us it's uh, everything because not everybody has a lot of money and we want pe- people of all ages of all ethnicities all uh, um all people out to our ballpark so our tickets start at 14 dollars um and that's we also have ticket plans that start at $16, and it comes with all-you-can-eat. So wow. you get all-you-can-eat hot dogs, you can get all-you-can-eat hamburgers, chicken sandwiches. For 16 bucks for a ticket. For $16 per ticket starting at five uh, five game plan. So um, And it's five of our best nights, so it includes those uh, so promotions that we talked about. So if I spend $16, bucks, I get to watch the baseball game, enjoy all the entertainment, and eat hot dogs and, and, and hamburgers and whatnot. And all that stuff, yep. Wow. I mean, that, that's a good deal. I think you'd lose money on me. <laughs> I, I really can truly do Let's so when that. does the season begin uh june 1st is opening day so uh and then it runs through august 4th uh so we're like i said we're over the summer while the guys are just trying to get more reps in um before the following season so when and how can people purchase tickets uh so we will have our single game tickets go on sale starting monday at 10 a.m that being said, if ticket plans and things like that, you're looking to come to multiple different games, our ticket plans start as low as five games. So five games throughout the summer, uh, ticket planners fit what, what you're looking for, and that starts now. What if you're a business looking for a, a venue to hold an event, uh, uh, customer appreciation, employee appreciation? Yeah, Are you in the business of that? We have all of that stuff, um, as low as 16 people up to – well, we have new core coming out for 600 people. So um, there's possibilities in multiple different areas that we can fit you guys in of groups of all sizes. So, so where does someone go to find out more? I mean, obviously you and I are doing kind of a on the run interview here, but where can someone sit down and clearly understand what sort of offerings are, what sort of prices there are, or when the games are? Yeah, absolutely. So you can call our office. Our office number is 843-413-2833. 
or you can look at our website. There's plenty of different information on that. Find a person to reach out to from there. And the website is? Oh, FlorenceFlamingos.com. Lawrence, I imagine that. FlorenceFlamingos.com. Um, Easy to remember. So, so, so people have gotten accustomed to the name change. Got about 30 seconds here. They've gotten accustomed to the name change. Yeah, I would say so. I, I think people have actually embraced it. If you go out to the ballpark, at first it was like, how's this going to work? Pink is an interesting color, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But then once they realized what we were trying to do and just be back to what we were saying, family entertainment, fun, engaging, different, they were like, oh, this is kind of cool. So you go out to our ballpark, you see um, uh, pink everywhere. It is pretty cool. So um, FlorenceFlamingos.com. If you enjoy baseball, but more than that, if you enjoy having a good time, uh, make sure to make it for the family uh, part of your summer. No doubt about it. Hey, we'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.